0: Just a year. Valley Who. Reviews.
2: Good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome 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 to the yesteryear ballyhoo review many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside so hurry and get your seats tonight the ballyhoo is at last free to travel abroad again and this time our international travels take us to Paris France in 1949 where an an accomplished mime is about to unveil the first step in a seven film journey that would solidify him as both a comedy legend and a master filmmaker while we in America had the notions of mail delivery as just another job, one Jacques Tati was able to prove that it may in fact be, most, be the most exciting and the most dangerous one of all. Well, maybe in France. But in order to understand what we mean, we must step inside the tent and kick back to a delightful fancy free afoot in Tati's double f- debut feature, Jour de Fête. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds.
1: atteint ainsi c'est qu'il vous apporte au contraire de bonnes nouvelles et vient vous annoncer
2: Show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1949, Jacques Tati's debut feature would open the world to open to world acclaim, giving the first time director the carte blanche to eventually create his more famous character in comedy. But the postman character that permeates George Dufet has its own history that proves just as important for the implications of first time filmmakers today and would prove to simultaneously be a salute to American slapstick, while also be a stopping point for Tati to then refine comedic portrayals. But how in the world can one mime accomplish all of this without his name being Marcel Marceau? Well, in order to answer that, we need an admirer of Tati and the ballet who has found quite a fan. He is a board member of the Colorado Film and Video Association, a film producer, and a screenwriter. But more importantly, he understands that only Jacques Tati can lay claim to the title of cinema's greatest cyclist. Please welcome to the program Mr. Sterling Cook. Hello, Zach. Hello, Hello. everyone. I'm so happy to have you here because... um, we we've got to disclose something to our audience.
0: Uh, go right on ahead. I'll the, let
2: you take the, it. the 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 uh, the debut of Sterling and Zach and, on microphones in a room has been in the works for I want to say now two and a half years, perhaps even three. <laughs> yeah the 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 origins of this go back to um, our first encounter at a uh, a film uh, a filmmaker uh, meetup in Colorado, um, but. Uh, we were trying to get you on for the Hellboy episode, which I ended up not being on anyway.
0: <laughs> I ended up hating that movie anyway. It, I
2: still haven't seen it.
0: <laughs> it's trash.
2: I I am too attached to Del Toro's to even bother at this point. Um, and the but then there were other times. But when Ballyhoo came around, I was just like, this is this is perfect. Let's get Sterling in here for this. And you brought to the table. Uh, a a new exposure point for me and brought us back to to world cinema, which has been um, a a ongoing attempt here at this show to give us more of an insight into early cinema outside of the American borders and of golden age Hollywood as it stands. Um, And yet you brought us a film that is clearly in love with Hollywood at a very early point. Um, but before we get into the film and before we get into the world of Parisian cinema, and um, make my real nerds co-host Ryan fall asleep because he could care less, but it's fine. This episode's not for you, Ryan. Um, well, I want to get to have you give you give you a chance to introduce yourself to the Ballyhoo audience. You are a filmmaker out here in Colorado. And you've recently been brought aboard to the board for the Colorado Film and Video Association, the CFVA.
0: That's correct. I was elected to the board of the Colorado Film Video Association in March.
2: So, for those who may not know what it is, can you explain what the CFVA's mission is?
0: Yeah, I'd be delighted. The Colorado Film Video Association, it um, the mission is really to serve as a professional media industry, um, or serve the professional media industry in, in Colorado, rather by offering um, educational opportunities promoting its members and um, growing connection and community to really build up the Colorado industry.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and that works within a, a broad purpose of helping the people who are interested in this medium still, and are still attracted to the idea of telling stories on film, which obviously we've learned over the course of a year that you can tell stories in various different ways, but CFVA is doing a good mission at helping provide a hub for people and a place for encouragement of those arts and you've already shown in the time that I've known you even from afar how accomplished you are from screenwriting to producing Um, and I do want you to kind of share your experience with this because we're talking about a first-time filmmaker today and we ourselves are in in the midst of our blossoming filmmaking careers, Um, well, yours, mine's, mine's, whatever it's, it's scattered to the wind. Oh, stop, man. I feel like 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 a little dust.
0: (laughs) I feel like being here, I'm, I'm uh, punching above my weight class a little bit. No, no, no. At least in terms of cinema and uh, (laughs) the passion and knowledge and appreciation that you bring to it.
2: Um, But I, but I do want you to kind of like give your journey on it. How did you get into filmmaking? And especially at a time when it seems like everybody doesn't want film to exist anymore. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a constant, uh, yeah, nobody, nobody wants us anymore. Mm. Um,
2: we're not video games.
0: (laughs) I am constantly like, should this, should this screenplay just be a video game? (laughs) Um, no, I came to filmmaking honestly through a love of paleontology. Uh, I was Mm. your typical, uh, small child in love with dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and both, um, both, you know, uh, Spielberg's Jurassic Park would be, like, the explosion yeah. that really shapes a fascination. But also, um, I grew up in Fresno, California. Okay. Uh, my dad's an old Colorado head, but got drafted, ended up in Fresno. Um, and at the time, there Fresno is a terrible place. Um, but there is one small district uh, called the Tower District in Fresno that uh, very much kind of has the vibe of just your... Your eclectic, uh, kind of like hipstery slacker, interesting uh, art scene—kind
2: of what the rest of the Bay Area has turned into today, um, I like guess, as, as gentrification has expanded. Um, or is it a little bit more eclectic and?
0: I would liken it to the Bay Area in like the 80s or something, like okay. pre-dot-com. It was just like. Kind of a grimy, uh, like a grimy place full of skateboarders and and weirdos. Fresno itself is sort of a mess of conservatism and urban sprawl, but uh, this one little strip. Mm -hmm. And there's the Tower Theaters, sort of the beacon of that area. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Tower Theater would do this thing in the summer because Fresno, it's so hot that uh, in the summer it can be 90 at night. Um, They would project films on the back of the theater. They had a nice big white wall. And you'd bring lawn chairs. So some of my earliest cinematic memories are sitting um, either on a blanket or a lawn chair. Summer
2: under the stars, quite literally, before TCM was doing it.
0: (laughs) Very, like, a very fantastical experience. Um, And the sense of community as well, just uh, wandering around, finding a spot, sitting down, and um, seeing your neighbors and, and community members and people you didn't know, just, like, Curious individuals, mm-hmm. all there to share this experience of of taking something in, yeah, uh, and then also because of probably just because it was cheaper, they would show old movies, uh, original Hunchback of Notre
2: Dame, um, King Kong. So they were giving you an early cinematic education in the process.
0: Very much so. I think the most like current film we had watched was Goldfinger.
2: Okay. Um, oh wow.
0: <laughs> But so I like I fell in love with Harry House and mm-hmm. and Claymation mm-hmm. and um, yeah Lon Chaney, yeah introduced me to a lot of things. Steve McQueen and The Blob, um, <laughs> as well. So you know you got like your heartthrobs and you got your
2: uh, but you've also got your established classics too. And you're um, particularly with Lon Chaney, you you you're getting an exposure to some of the more craftier elements of horror cinema which actually one of the first reasons that i met you was through a horror was through a horror project that you were working on
0: that's time. right we were working on the new freedom at the time yeah and uh a mutual friend i think connected us at yeah a screening. olivia, olivia yeah. Carmel, who's, yeah. who's
2: been on the show for um our olivia de Havilland discussion because it was <laughs> it coincided very well <laughs> that's hilarious
0: uh no shout out to her she's fantastic yep. um Hopefully she's at Telluride Horror Show this year.
2: I hope so, too, because she always seems to love it. Every time she posts about it, I'm just like, I, I would love to go, but I'm, I'm sheepishly shy around crowds right now. I it's can't. the
0: happiest place on earth. Uh, <sighs> I understand entirely we have to you know, do safety and all. but Oh,
2: no, even before that, I was just like, I don't know if I want to be in a crowded area going to horror films. I might just want to wait. But it's at the same time, I'm just like, this is where I might see some films that may never get screened again. And there's that
0: possibility. And again, like we were saying uh, with the Tower Theater and that early experience, just the energy of watching horror films mm-hmm. in a crowd of people that are there so excited to watch horror films, mm-hmm. uh, the buy-in is huge. And um, if there's like one major problem with decades of cinema going uh, up until COVID killed it, mm-hmm. it would... <laughs> uh it would be like you'd be in a theater and it would seem like half the people were there either out of an obligation or just to kill time you know like i remember being at the mayan and someone was on slack like someone was working from home in the theater and i was watching the lighthouse
2: wait hold on the movie with the tentacle monster in the top of a fucking tower. yeah and then Willem Dafoe with the dog leash. Mermaid's vagina. And, and yes, and yes, I'm, I'm bearing the lead here. Oh. <laughs> um, and somehow somebody up in the rafters is going, nah. They're sitting front and center as well.
0: <laughs> that was the thing. It was upsetting. So the beauty of Tell Your Right Horror Show is no one there is texting. Mm-hmm. And uh, like everyone is there. You know, maybe there's some laughs or some screams. Yeah. You get that, that great kind of uh, contagious energy. but. Yeah.
2: There's there's a there's a there, you said that sense of community with the Tower Theater, mm-hmm. the horror community is still one that when you get them in a in a screening for anything whether it's old or new, they're having fun with it. And I'll tell you one of the last things I did before the pandemic shut down and everything was go to a the preview screening for Invisible Man, and I it wasn't the largest crowd in the world, but I still heard sounds in the background people getting scared people mm-hmm. getting excited and i'm like this is what i love about this this movie's going to win best picture and then it didn't yeah. but <laughs> um <clears throat> but then additionally like when i went to go see us <clears throat> premiere day us was one of those things where i heard people screaming in the middle of the theater yeah um and even and, and the lighthouse actually had when we went to the alamo for it there was there was <laughs> definitely some gasps or two from people who i don't think were knowing exactly what they were getting into with Robert Eggers but
0: or just like nervous laughter is another favorite of mine when it comes to uh, horror films yeah that nervous yeah. laughter when did, you don't know how to feel
2: did you ever get that in hereditary when you saw hereditary
0: um oh man I, I, I would like to never think about that film again <laughs> <laughs> uh, her, yeah, her, I mean I can tell you If where, you've seen it I don't need to explain it Yeah, but.
2: I can tell you why, why the nervous laughter Came from me And it's not from the moment That everybody gasped at That That got a gasp from me Because I was like Oh my god um, But And I and I still don't know How I feel about the movie I own it But I haven't opened it up Since I bought it
0: I love it I just I don't think I can I don't think I can watch it Yeah It, uh, it hits a little too close to home With certain themes mm. And um, Yeah, I remember like Early on with that reveal I'm gutted Yeah uh, that's sort of the beauty of that filmmakers is, is the ability to gut you early on, and then you're disarmed.
2: Yeah, Ari Aster is um, very good at pulling the rug from under you in in many regards. And Midsummer is something I need to go back to, but that's a film that when I watch it, when I watched it in the theater, I was not fully prepared for everything. But the one thing that got revealed to me early on was the was the terminology that it's a breakup movie. Right. And so then when I went in with that mindset, everything else around it seemed to kind of take me aback because mm-hmm. I kept thinking about that theme. And instead, the horror ended up compounding in certain respects, like certain scenes that may not have been scary to me initially felt more terrifying. Um, it's funny
0: how one, uh, you know, one theme planted in your brain can really change the lens. Yeah
2: exactly and astor's work is very good at blurring that line which is why i feel like he's so divisive for some people which i don't he's not my favorite filmmaker but i respect the shit out of him you
0: know yeah and he brings a lot of patience to things like mm-hmm. um anyway so someone laughed.
2: yeah oh hereditary. oh hereditary it was when um tony collette's character uh it's near the end when she's when she's moving around and I think it's the background and again, it's, it's been, she's about in that years. center
0: left top frame. Yeah. yeah. And
2: I heard giggles and I was just like, what are you fucking people laughing at? But then I realized like, no, they're freaked out because that's, that's the, that's the same thing that I started noticing a couple of years back when I saw the conjuring and I saw how James right. Wan was working with figures in the background and slowly approaching with right. not the, not actually not the conjuring insidious. And, yeah. see, and seeing that he was placing things in the background that then would slowly approach or wouldn't even catch your eye until the next minute. And what you think is a jump scare has actually already been set up. Dear
0: listener, this might tie into Tati eventually if uh, if I get invited back to do other Ooh, films. I, I He does love his multiplane space and mm. playing with foreground and background and all.
2: I, 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 full disclosure, this was my first Tati film. And... As the journey goes on, I'm just going to call you up for each film and just be like, get on over here. We're talking about holiday next. There's traffic, and here's parade. And- <laughs> That'll be exciting. I
0: haven't seen traffic or parade yet.
2: We're, we're, we're in for a fun journey together. Come on, join us on the Tati Tour 2021. If we may. Yeah,
0: bring your bicycle, bring your bell, and bring a uh, small shot glass full of white wine.
2: Ooh, ooh, be ready. Now, before we actually get to Tati, though, yeah. we have to get you we have to get your little history with golden age Hollywood, but you've already kind of given it to us because that tower theater experience gave you exposure to things like King oh, Kong. Oh yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. I'm but, such a
0: tangential human. I, uh, <laughs> you'll have to read me back in, but, oh no. but yes, it was a, it was a love of Harryhausen and, and, um, dinosaurs that really brought me into cinema. And then mm-hmm. asking my dad, like, why do we care? Uh, I'm, I know that like, the Hunchback was a very visceral, weird experience to me. I mean, you know, when he's getting whipped on that wheel. Yeah. Uh, to this day, if I just look at a still from that scene... Um, it's tragic. <laughs> it's so humiliating and it's so tragic. Uh, and, like, yeah, the, the the emotion and, like, the pathos that they capture, the way that Chaney is able to humanize monsters... Yeah. Uh, ...makes him, you know, live up to that legend. But at the time, that was my introduction and... Um, that started a whole conversation on the walk home and then him talking, my, my father talking about Cheney, putting egg membranes over his eyes. Like the, the very weird practical effects that sound quite painful. Like mm-hmm. the torturous journey he would go on to create that. And you know, at five you're wondering why someone would yeah it, put themselves in pain for art.
2: It's well, and it's something that uh, you, you brought something up that struck me and it applies to that makeup to a certain degree. Is because the characterizations that he possessed were one of two ways. He would either help he would help either help humanize something, or he would take it to the nth degree of villainy. Mm. Um so when mm-hmm. he's playing the legless gangster and I believe it's um it's not the unknown, no, I'm thinking of something else, but um there are other characters that he's portrayed, um, even in the silent version of the Unholy Three before he does the talking version where he epitomizes like a pure evil, a monstrosity-ridden evil. And I still maintain that Phantom of the Opera, his version of Phantom of the Opera, is an ultimate villain. But that is a film that, when interpreted, gives you elements of sympathy and empathy attached to it to where artists down the line are able to make a little bit more of a streamlined version of the uh, Sympathy for the Monster Mm -hmm. uh, narrative, which... I love that that has blossomed. But when I went back to Phantom of the Opera for my Halloween binge, the one thing I was noticing, like, man, like, he is, like, I, because you know the psychological bent that he's on, the things that he's doing seem so dastardly. But because we have the benefit of film interpretation at this point, we are seeing it, we can either see it through the lens of 1925 or we can see it through the lens of 2021. Yeah. <laughs> and from from in that, we can kind of get, the brilliance of how many layers he's playing with, and again, not saying a single word, up until The Unholy Three before his passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I-, I get the impression with Cheney that even if our listening audience or anybody who is into film, has never seen a Lon Chaney film. They know who Lon Chaney is pretty right off the bat because that's how powerful an image that was.
0: Oh yeah. And the fact
2: that you saw the hunchback of Notre Dame, which is, I mean, certainly not the first one that I saw. I think my first one would have been phantom because it was the most readily available. Um, But that you latched onto the, the, the human element that he brought to a performance is very, it's a very wonderful thing to observe at a young age because then it taps into your sensibilities for what you end up doing down the line. Because as you brought up with Tati in our off mic chatter about the humanism that Tati brings. So you're very, you, you, I can tell from talking with you that you're very in tune with the human experience and the human condition and how we are, how we experience the different gamut of emotions from pain and suffering on down to laughter and joy. And something that I wanted to ask you in regards to that experience with Golden Age Hollywood, which gets tends to be relegated in some some uh, camps, not thankfully not as much as I might have expected maybe 10 years ago, uh, that there's a relegation of like there's no depth or pathos to these films. Um, Aside from... it was, can be
0: a little harder to tap into, I think. Yeah. It's a little alienating just because you're not used to the the medium and the format and the uh, sort of the dialectic, the grammar.
2: Yeah. Um, and the delivery and the pacing and the timing. Yeah, But it's
0: all in there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because I would say that, like, there's a certain point by the time we get to stuff like Tati's uh, debut here that there is, like, it's almost like this film has the last remnants of uh, some of the earlier angles on how emotions are portrayed on screen before what is what, what every piece of research that I did indicates leads to a, a a big transcendence and leap by the next movie. Um, But the question that I have for you today, as you brought this experience of golden age Hollywood to us, which honestly makes me much like when Jack Hanley told me about his uh, Hitchcock tours through universal Mm. watching King Kong outside I, I'm fucking jealous of you. So uh, you're 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 not on my hit list. It's just you're 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 on the list of people. I'm just like I wish I could have, could have been Sterling. Oh well.
0: Oh man, no <laughs> one's ever said that in their lives. But just, thank you.
2: Just walk down like sad Snoopy and cry. <laughs> <laughs> um. And I mean, keep it, I I have to keep in mind that last night I talked to somebody who's just like, you know, I saw The Shining in its first release and I'm like, you fucking asshole.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah, you know, we have those moments uh, in cinema where you, you get to witness things. Mm -hmm. Um, Seeing Vertigo, like when I, when I ended up in San Francisco later on, uh, I worked in the Bay for a bit. I uh, studied film at San Francisco State Mm -hmm. and then um, just took any gig I could when I was in the Bay. Um,
2: but you got to see vertigo in san francisco
0: in 70 millimeter <sighs>
2: oh, oh damn it <laughs> uh
0: yeah it was uh it was just so special first of all they they always set the mood with that organ they have that big uh mm-hmm. pipe organ that they play mm-hmm. and then um and vertigo is i know this kind of like slightly outside the the scope of this particular podcast but right. uh It's just—it's one of those movies, and it really ties into all cinema. Tati especially is someone that you benefit from, multiple viewings. Yeah, um, with Hitchcock, and I mean you're the (laughs) Hitchcock guy. But
2: he did too many fucking episodes, Sterling. That's a fucking problem. (laughs) (laughs) All this talk, blah 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 blah.
0: (laughs) Anyway, you know he's got he's got sort of the greatest hits. Yeah. Uh, and when you're a kid like seeing psycho that was another one that I saw pretty early on
2: yeah which is which always influences you in some form or fashion with either vitriol or passion
0: <laughs> yeah or it changes how you dress like I don't know yeah I uh, bought a wig after that
2: you know it but, well you know I mean I, I I honestly didn't think that the Norma Bates wig would be such a success off of psycho but you've clearly proved it wrong I mean it's my cheekbones it yeah it, it. Um, <laughs>
0: But uh, taking it back to to Vertigo, I think, like, the themes in Vertigo are not under... I also saw Vertigo when I was on the Hitchcock kick when I was, like, 11. Mm -hmm. And that one, I fell asleep. Like, it didn't really mean anything to me. That's fair, though,
2: because it's not not engaging in the same way for a kid, I think.
0: No, I had to be in, like, two or three long-term relationships before (laughs) Vertigo really clicked. And then you, you realize how that obsession with controlling something that you love and trying to change it like but yeah those aren't themes that you no. you get when you're a kid
2: no when um, you're a kid you're just like when do we get to the part where there's a shower or where do we get to the part where the birds are attacking tippy Hedron? yeah yeah that, that's your that's your central focus point where's like, peter no, Laurie? no no yeah, where's peter Laurie is a question you ask regardless if it's hitchcock or not yeah, and, anytime anytime yeah avengers endgame i was like where's peter Laurie?
0: <laughs> i was on a bus the other day and i was just like man peter Laurie would love this
2: bus where where is he right now i would totally love it Sterling. <laughs> <laughs> I could drive it beep beep. Who's the cord? The stop, the stop. What, you don't have fare? Get the fuck off my bus. <laughs> there's a there's something about Vertigo when we discussed it for Shamley because it it it's such a it's a film that is so impactful but it has such a lot of a, a lot of a lot of loaded themes from mm. modern context that in addition to the legacy we're trying to tackle this bigger issue. But like the one thing that is undeniable about Vertigo is that it is like it, it is eternally compelling as a film. It's not my go to hitch, but I got that feeling about appreciating something when you're older mm-hmm. with notorious in oh, the yeah. rewatch. Notorious and suspicion. The Cary Grant the Cary Grant films grew in my estimation when I did Shamley because I, one, cause I'm, I podcast each week with a Cary Grant dork. Yeah. The other one <laughs> is that, uh, is just watching how notorious works and how Cary Grant is playing the epitome of assholery in that movie, essentially. Like it's obviously he grows by the end, but you're just, you, you appreciate it on a different level of just like actually being able to observe what he's doing and also watching the inner machinations of Alexander and his mother. And, It works now for me in a way that it probably wouldn't have worked when I first saw it because I I remember watching it going like, well, this is interesting, I guess. And I like... I, I like Claude Rains from Casablanca, so mm-hmm. that, and that's a movie I understand completely.
0: <laughs> yeah, that one. Uh, there's something about that; it's pretty universal. Early on, I guess the stakes are just so clear.
2: Yeah, exactly. Watch it's about how I kill Nazis, Sterling. That's that's.
0: <laughs> yeah, baby. Uh, <laughs> Casablanca was like definitely one of the golden age ones that I saw as a kid that like hit right away, instantly favorite movie for a little while.
2: So, with all of this and all of this experience that you have with it, how is it that somebody who clearly grew up with uh, the Hollywood standard package in a lot of respects. How do you find Tati? Uh,
0: I believe Tati was my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather, Robert L. Cook, who um, lived actually just up the road a bit in Boulder
2: Okay.
1: Uh,
0: after he got out of the war. Um, He's a playwright. He worked at the uh, Denver Art Museum eventually. <laughs> um, but just he he was the one that turned me more onto world cinema, and I don't know if that, cause he's like a boy from the Southwest. He was a professional square dance caller and a radio host for a while. Like he's, he's a, it's an odd portrait, but, but, but,
2: but it's the most eclectic background I've ever heard in my life. sir.
0: Yeah. He had an excellent Van Dyke and some old photos as well. Um, <laughs> but he um, really had an appreciation for, for world cinema. And so he turned me on to um, like Alexander Nevsky, Mhm. Um at an age when I didn't really appreciate it like I liked it cuz he liked it and you know the scene where the horses fall through the ice like mm-hmm. really is harrowing um and Eisenstein's such a
2: Yeah, like, and Russian cinema is something that I've been getting more exposed to now thanks to the Rusophile's Movies Unite podcast. Um that's out of the UK where or you just turned me on to something
0: fun. I'm going to have to write. I, I will get,
2: gi- I will give you a link to this. Allie, Ali Pitts does it. It's a great show. And I, I got turned on to it through, uh, the first one that I listened to, they did on death of Stalin, which that was my go-to. Cause I like Ianucci's work. My favorite movie that year. It was on my top 10. And I'll tell you that that movie surprised the shit out of me because I was not expecting it to, to make me laugh on the floor. Like, oh, get, yeah. like literally fall onto the floor laughing in the landmark Greenwood Village where they do not clean that floor. <laughs> um, and, um, and History of David Copperfield. And Copper it filmed. makes you pucker
1: yeah. at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. The, when, when, when you see um, Khrushchev seizing everything. Mm it just makes it, it had that moment where I grabbed my seat because it stopped being hilarious while yeah. still being darkly comic. And also I am a big fan of Steve Buscemi's performance as cruise ship because of the fact that he is clearly just talking like Steve Buscemi. He's not trying to do any inflection whatsoever.
0: No, I mean, that's something to appreciate about that film is they, they very early on, like don't make anyone commit to accents because <laughs> <accents> <laughs> It would just be distracting. Mm-hmm. Like it's Steve Buscemi. If if he sounded like anyone else ever,
2: it would be a disservice to Steve Buscemi and his legacy. Yeah, it'd be like Peter Lorre doing like a. I'm just, me I, me and Steve are just two peas in a pod. <laughs> yeah, imagine him trying to like
0: he's in a western or something. And,
2: I was the I was the original Donny, and I was always out to my element. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but you're but that but that particular show has been transposing me more onto Russian cinema, but with your grandfather and him exposing you to the world cinema, did it, so it took you, but it obviously took you into more into your adulthood to kind of latch on to what the appeal is. Yeah. Like a
0: lot of things, there was the, there was the respect because someone that I respected was showing me something that they uh, held dear. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you go on, I think, I think it's his follow up film holiday. Um, yeah. Tati's, uh, he wins best uh, best foreign language Academy Award. And, yeah, at and the My Oscars. grandfather probably saw that in the theaters, uh, and, and that was the one he showed me actually. Um, so that
2: was so that was your first exposure. Yeah, it was Eulos
0: Holiday. Really. And um, it was a very joyous like screening. I had a lot of fun. You know, I stayed up late, watched the movie with my grandpa. I think it was snowing. Uh, it, you know, it was just like a it was a cool memory, uh, and. It it wasn't something that I, it wasn't a movie that like I loved, but I loved the experience. And maybe that's why like I have an, an, an endearing sort of feeling
2: towards Tati. That's how I feel about Casablanca with my grandfather. Um, because yeah. that, uh, the, the the experience of first watching it in full with him on a Zenith television that was clearly out of date with uh-huh. a, in a VHS copy in the living room of my grandparent's house. That's the strongest memory I have. That and watching Planet of the Apes in the morning, but that was just because it's Planet of the Apes and it's fucking great.
0: That was when we got to see it at the Tower Theater when I was a kid. Oh. Uh, I and was you, obsessed.
2: And you didn't know the ending beforehand, right?
0: <laughs> no. I, the great thing about being five or six
2: is you go into everything dark. <laughs> uh, it was, wait, dad, it was Earth all along? Wow. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. <I'm> shocked. <laughs> you just, just start like, looking don't everyone a little different. <laughs> yeah, you're just going like, uh, we're 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 gonna finally do it aren't we just give it another 50 years
0: <laughs> that movie's a documentary that for something that hasn't happened yet uh i think it'll be like dolphins maybe planet of the dolphins if I, we don't completely ruin the oceans but
2: i'm voting for ostriches because their statues might look cooler
0: god what now. about those uh those new zealand birds with the talons
2: oh uh ostrich
0: like but they'll just disembowel a man it's a big deal
2: and that kind of falls into the line of the, the the fantasy element. So I could I could definitely see that. Can they eloquate on what makes a person worthy of rights, like in the courtroom scenes? <laughs> I mean, they have cloacas,
0: which they, already makes them more advanced than us. Yeah,
2: and also, can Maurice Evans play one of them? <laughs> I know he's dead, but assuming for a moment that we can bring him back to life for this one ideal project.
0: <laughs> yeah, look, why is Jeff Bezos not just recreated, like... Why hasn't he brought
2: Maurice Evans, Peter Laurie, <laughs> everybody back to life? What Instead are you doing
0: in space? What, we have bodies in the ground and you, we have DNA samples.
2: Yeah, the, the penis that you shot up into the air matters not to me. What matters to me is Jack Benny playing the violin as a zombie, and I haven't gotten that yet, Mr. Bezos. But <laughs> um, but yeah, no. so you... So now as an adult, you are appreciating Tati, uh, to the point where you're recommending it for this show, but yeah. also it, the thing that is amazing about Tati that we're going to talk about is that it's almost like a crash course education in one for uh, early American comedy.
0: He gives you, um, everything. He gives you, you know, Senate and Chaplin and Keaton mm-hmm. and Lloyd and Laurel, yeah. um, like you, you see all of that in there. because uh, I would say, especially in this film, uh, there's not much that he's doing with the camera that's like innovative. There are shots that are quite good, yeah. Um, but nothing is like really innovative, um, compared to what's churning out of America at the time,
2: yeah. And compared to, or, or even with other countries within Paris's sphere, like the UK has the archers right pulling off right wonderfully dynamic things if not with the camera then at the very least with the color palette that it's working with
0: yeah very much so funny you bring up color we'll get into that but that's a whole other legacy yeah, of that, this film that uh, is
2: another thing but in order to properly tell it we gotta we gotta tell the story of tati a little bit and
0: uh yeah um just to hit that point but because uh, you know even cinema's sort of pre-1999 before the matrix destroys cinema by being a masterpiece. Uh, <laughs> you know we have the silent era and like the things that you're seeing in the silent era in terms of dynamic camera movements or like uh, beautifully you know compositions that tell the whole story yeah um you you as a historian or at least an aficionado a dork yeah you as a you was an absolute nerd uh a real nerd some might say
2: oh oh thanks for the plug yeah
0: yeah check him out um You know that when sound comes into cinema, like we have a huge regression in the visual language of cinema. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I would say there's nothing innovative going on with the compositions in a Tati film, but uh, but you are seeing him building on this legacy yeah. of physicality.
2: Right. Well, not only that too. I see that there is an embrace of not shoving the old tactics to the side, mm. and that's more of an emotional. Um, impact I get off of it. And something that I was thinking about this week when it came to Tati's film was how how unashamed it is to be existing in 1949 as a clear uh, successor or in the same league. I would argue it's in the same league as a Chaplin, Keaton um, Lloyd in terms of the... In terms of the audacity that um, presents itself with the stunt work, with the comedy, with primarily utilizing pure cinema in this respect, because like mm-hmm. the, di- the dialogue I noticed in this film is like the l- one of the more l- the least important elements of the film.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how much um, dialogue there was. The first time I saw this, I was surprised with the dialogue because his other films are, are famously pretty silent, mm-hmm. pretty smart. Well, not silent. That's not fair because um, he's an absolute master of soundscape right uh, even in this early film we'll get into that yeah we will get into that um, um, but, but yeah, he, there's quite a bit of dialogue well there's like
2: the, there's that element of Hitchcock's pure cinema where he I should clarify pure cinema it's not necessarily just what he learned from Lang and Paul Lenny in the re, in the realm of like using as little title cards as possible and not having any of the sound period mm-hmm. Hitchcock's workaround was selective sound knowing where sound goes but the primary Ima- the primary focus of the imagery in Jour de Fête ends up being a physical performance and not uh, nothing that is motivated by dialogue apart from like ancillary plot motivation.
0: Which, in and of themselves, yeah, really aren't that important. Just, <laughs> yeah. It, he's, he definitely wants to tie this film up with a bow. Yeah. And, like, yeah. It, the, the, the dialogue helps in that structure. Exactly. Of tying the film up. Or, like, I think just speeding up. Um, sometimes I think there's a visual gag in here that maybe uh, doesn't work mm. um, without some sort of an introduction or a prompt. Yeah. And, like, when we get into the... Um, the plot breakdown. As yeah, it, when we get into the old lady who sort of, like introduces things uh the old lady with a goat
2: oh you mean the person i want to be when i grow up yeah,
0: yeah i would love that for you
2: <laughs> not an old lady but an old person walking around with a goat narrating people's lives before
0: the ostriches take over i hope that you get that fate
2: oh oh look there's maurice evans as the ostrich i guess it's oh. my time to die <laughs> <laughs> um there's peter Laurie. we brought him back for what reason i can't remember <laughs> to, to to delight us um <laughs>
0: And creep us out and whistle at our
2: kids. <laughs> um, Fritz Lang jokes right on. Wonderful. <laughs> but, but but yeah, they, it, it is kind of.
0: Because uh, he shoots everything um, silently. Mm-hmm. It's all MOS. Uh, a million different things that could stand for. Yeah. We'll never know. Um, <laughs> but he's shooting everything silently and then adding uh, ADR to it. Yeah. Uh, pretty obsessively later on and even in this one I think and so there were a couple moments in here where I wonder like that old lady's line did he throw that in there because something needed a setup and he discovered that in post
2: I feel like that's the case especially knowing that the with the MOS because Mm -hmm. it's almost like he's this is a learning tool for him this is his film school Yes. In a way where, like, where is the, the the short that precedes it, um, the Postman School.
1: Have uh, you seen school, this? the Postman School? School
2: for Postman. I saw some, I saw sections of it within okay. the documentary that's available on, um, there's a documentary I found on Prime for rental that was very invaluable to give, not a crash course, I think it's actually very, very in-depth for a 60-minute documentary about Tati called The Magnificent Tati, um, where they actually interviewed Mimes to break down his origin point. And I was uh, because my first question run that was like, how do you get him to talk? But then after after that, it was it was very much just learning about this remarkable person who. Did you know that he was a fucking Russian nobility (laughs) beforehand?
0: Yeah. What's his uh, what's his what's the name of the lineage there? Because I think his daughter bears that name.
2: The 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 uh, the origin point of his nobility comes from Rurikid descent. Yes. And I pulled this up because I do not know what Rurik this dynasty is, but it's sons and descendants of Rurik is the literal translation of it. It's a dynasty founded by the Varangian prince Rurik who established himself in Novgorod around the year AD 862. Novgorod, now we're going back to Nevsky. Yeah, and full disclosure, the origin point for Tati's family Uh comes before the cusp of revolution. Yeah. And that, to me, I don't think it necessarily bleeds into his work, but there's a sentiment that i i get a hint of of a disdain for not capitalism but more just like the the some of the value systems that are in place and i don't think it's like a detriment by any stretch i think it's a value to have that viewpoint um it's just something that like i got from jure was some kind of like there's a bit of a there's a there's a bit of a poking a stick at the American Bear.
0: Not just the American Bear, but like you notice how um in the film and this isn't really a plot dynamic although it like very heavily colors uh the film, but the the way that the village always sort of pokes at him, he's a postman. Yeah. He's a postman that rides a bike, he's a bike messenger. Yeah. Postman. And uh and somehow that gives him airs and and there is this, uh, this sort of running bit where the town likes to just make a sport of him a little bit.
2: Yeah, he is a, he is a walking punching peg. Or...
0: And I think it, it comes from just because he's wearing a uniform, they see him as authority. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like the silliest version of that, but uh, they're constantly bringing him down a little or, or saying that they're humbling him, and, and he him himself doesn't all seem that proud
2: no he he doesn't seem to think of himself above anything that he is which knowing tati's origin story and where he comes from there's a point made from it because he's he's born of a triage of descent uh, of ancestry from dutch italian and russian yeah he's a melting pot Uh, he's a he's melting pot a number one really in in a lot of respects of just like you know working with a triage of influences in your life because his mother is Dutch Italian his father is Russian Um, his father actually was in tracing back as far as I could with with some of the information was basically just that like he met the mother and the mother then raised him after like he but they never fully they never married and so I don't know how. Oh no, that was no, that was his grandfather. Sorry, his grandfather. Um, Mar doesn't marry the person that bears his son. Mm. And then when he when his father mar- marries his mother, he gets brought into this family trade where he's he's adjusting to a value system that first saw him as a child pulled from France back to Russia and then from Russia back to France by the mother so he's gaining these various perspectives that he clearly passes on some form of intelligent thought down to Tati Mm -hmm. who wasn't known to be a particularly like accelerary student. Um, in fact, his primary excelling points came in other amongst other things, tennis. Yeah. Rugby, rugby, tennis. And it's, it's interesting how there's a lot of, uh, figures that we've discussed on this show that have college educations and backgrounds or they're coming out of vaudeville right in America and Tati falls in line with the vaudeville crowd where he's yeah. not growing up with an immense devotion to education but it's almost it sounds like that his his excelling in education comes in later in life as it does with most of the vaudeville comics we experience with golden age Hollywood in particular and I found it interesting that among the things he got into within his sports career was entertaining his fellow teammates mm-hmm. by doing mimic and impressions. And these would form sports impressions, which is his act that he does at music halls. And I had a quote here from a, uh, a French author that was the most like g- I want to say it's the most glowing thing I've ever read about a single person ever. In a way that like makes Peter Travers sound like a like an inept child. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not a dig at Peter Travers. It's just he, he's a very enthusiastic fella. Uh,
0: on my end, it's a slight dig.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, we can divide up the tally point here of like how much of a of a, uh, a, a roll a d twenty and see how many uh, yeah. hit points that <laughs> Peter Travers gets in this. D&D we'll game. See if I get out of the cave. Yeah, the the de fête D&Dathon. <laughs> the the ta, the the Tati of Terror.
0: Is... We'll be playing and until you're red, right. the Tati of Terror until you're red. Right.
2: The Tati of Terror until you're red. Right. Come out
0: in October, guys.
2: Yeah, exactly. See how many of you can survive the cyclist challenge. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Full disclosure: right. We will accept expect you to sketch on the back of a truck. Yeah, I'll go on with the quote because I'm curious to hear it. There. Yeah, this is from the uh writer for uh, for Le Journal and his Colette. She was an inf- influential oh, writer yes. and mime. And he said, from now on, no celebration, no artistic or acrobatic spectacle can do without this amazing performer who has invented something quite his own. His act is partly ballet and partly sport, partly satire and partly a charade. He has devised a way of being both the player, the ball, and the tennis racket, of being simultaneously the football and the goalkeeper, the box and his opponent, the bicycle and the cyclist. Without any purpose, he conjures up his own accessories and his partners. He has suggestive powers of all great artists. How gratifying it was to see the audience's warm reaction. Tati's success says a lot about the sophistication of the allegedly uncouth public about its taste for novelty and its appreciation of style. Jacques Tati, the horse and the rider conjured will show all of Paris the living image of that legendary creature, the centaur. Now see, when I said that yeah, this is remarkable, the, this is the most celebrate th- this is the most praiseworthy thing I've ever read because I have never read a review that ended with the word centaur. And I think that deserves some form of a plaque.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, in the D&D game, he would definitely be a centaur.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) With boxing gloves. You approach the Tati, but he won't let you pass the bridge without answering the three questions. Yeah,
0: first you have to dance with him. Um And if you watch some of the um some of the shorts or like some of the footage on the Criterion they have just like a couple captures and I think in the documentary too you get to see bits and pieces of that routine.
2: Yeah, you and the one uh, the one that's on Prime Video you see photographs of how he was positioning himself. So they had still frames of like what this technique involves.
0: And um you get to see it uh, to some degree as well in some of the short films mm-hmm. uh like the boxing and such, yeah. But...
2: Which um, they, which those those images were, or those uh, those clips were to me. I, I just, I don't, I didn't think of that kind of comedic speed coming out of France. Right. That was my. That was the surprising point for me. And I, and I'm rather ignorant with world cinema, and I'm I'm learning more about this. But it was just like it was just fascinating to watch the same speed that Chaplin and Keaton have, coming out of France, and in some ways more insane.
0: Yeah, just a bit more insane, a bit more uh French, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> um even the still images, there's um the poses that they happen to catch him in are are so like wildly expressive that you as I was saying uh to you that I had seen clips of the vaudeville routines or yeah. the miming. I am pretty sure that it was a false memory. And I was just thinking of the images. Yeah. But they're so expressive and there's so much dynamic like movement captured in that frame that I'm pretty sure I then projected in my sleep that I had seen the routine.
2: And sporting impressions, first of all, it's not a false memory to me because when you see photographs of these acts, unless you have the Vitaphone shorts that existed for a lot of our East Coast and West Coast vaudeville acts in the late 1920s as they existed before the Vitaphone shorts effectively were them digging their own graves. Mm. You have to paint a picture in your head of what it is. If you can get a description of the act and you can get a photograph of, the co- of them in costume and maybe mid-pose, your brain is a wonderful tool that can fill in the gaps when it comes to those. And partially it's because it's all we have. Like if I had if I had access to a camera to then go back in time, I'd be going to the uh, to the Genesee Theater or the Barrison Theater in Waukegan, hmm. where Jack was Jack Benny was in the pit orchestra, but the Marx Brothers were on stage in their early years in 1917, doing things like Fun in High School, and watching those with Tati. You know the, those shorts that we have are are the are the approximation, but even those photographs and. Seeing him mid-performance, you get a sense of what it might be like to be present for that.
0: Yeah, there's almost like a zootropic effect to it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you're, and it's no different from radio sometimes, where your your brain paints an even bigger, better picture than the actual thing might do. So it kind of builds the legend up in your head to an extent. And this glowing review by Colette is is not enough. It keeps this momentum rolling until. World War 2 breaks out or at the very not not World War 2 itself France's involvement in World War Two, right? Because the the con- here's the context part of the show, folks, where everybody loves to get lectured to. R- r-
0: uh, you know, pull up a chair, um, put on some comfortable fuzzy socks, and uh, yeah, get ready. This is yeah, going to be great.
2: Y- Grandpa Zach's going to talk a little bit now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he pulled a cane out. Yeah, exactly. I uh, I I I, mean, I got a blanket over a wheelchair, and I'm going, gentlemen of the jury, you can't send that boy to prison. Yeah, we're having a fireside chat. Oh uh, yeah, it's one my fellow americans fun fact france surrendered in 1940 but before that i'll quentin tarantino this and go back to uh how we got here and then you hear al green let's stay together as everybody's preparing to fight the germans in world war ii (laughs) let's stay together um no um in 1939, Tati is returns to the regiment that he had prior enlisted in for military service, the Regiment of Dragons.
0: <laughs> yeah, gotta love France.
2: I, I mean that everybody says Game of Thrones is the most interesting thing on television. I dare you to make a movie called or a TV show called Regiment of Dragons, <laughs> uh, but not Be very bureaucratic. Not a not though not a uh, his, uh, history show. I just want a regiment of actual dragons and debating inter-politics, debating, uh, kind of like what the Star Wars prequels do. Oh. Basically, I want the Star Wars prequels with dragons because it might help the Star Wars prequels be better. Yeah, and <laughs> only
0: like Jim Henson puppets. Uh, please, no green screen. <laughs>
2: <Yay>! <laughs> all right, so we agree on budget resolution 529. <laughs> and then they all salute with a fire breath. <laughs> um, and uh, he returns to military service. Now his, I have this written down as specific because I kind of wanted to get this Uh, out in a full sentence if possible for myself. I believe in you. In 39, he rejoins his regiment where he sees action in the Battle of the Sedan and this is as the Germans are advancing into northern France. Mm -hmm.
0: They said they couldn't do it, folks. They said it couldn't be done. (laughs) No one was prepared for this.
2: (laughs) And meanwhile, everybody in America is going like, well, I don't think we should get involved because America first.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to get vaccinated against the anti-Semitism just yet.
2: Oh, God. That just... I just... Everything we've experienced over the last four years like spoiler alert for the point of this show guys everything that happened uh in the most recent history happened 80 years prior so this is why you're getting the history lesson because you didn't fucking learn the first time
1: yeah Um, yeah (laughs)
0: absolutely uh so while we were uh being isolationist our bankers uh and economy were just bankrolling like everyone across the ocean
2: yeah it's it's
0: and we had done it the previous war as well
2: yeah it's it's almost as if it's all rigged. But anyway, back to the Germans advancing into northern France. And a France. young
0: mime in the Regiment of Dragons.
2: Yeah, I, I, a young mime in the Regiment of Dragons who would then destroy the One Ring of Paris.
0: <laughs> I had that dream, too, <laughs> last it was, night. It
2: was a wonderful dream. And then and then Jacques Tati went off into the Grey Havens. <laughs>
0: he was both Finger and Gollum. <laughs>
2: I I would love Jacques Tati to talk about his precious (laughs) in French Jacques Tati reading Lord of the Rings for audible.com uh
0: Bezos bring him back yeah we need it
2: we can do it we already we brought me back why can't we bring him back (laughs) um and by the time this is in May of 1940 by the way and then his division is disassembled by June of 1940 after France's government ceded control to the Nazis. Tati then returns to Paris as a civilian mm-hmm. during the war. The, way, the reason I've got to explain this for people is because when France surrendered, there is Nazi-occupied France that is controlled under the Vichy government, um, which is the power that it was allowed to stay in power Provided that there was Nazi capi- capi- capitulation in the process, that's all. Folks. He's going to do another take. No, 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 no. That will stay in. Yeah, Porky Pig giving you a history lesson, I guess, guys. Um, but at the same time, this is happening. G- Charles de Gaulle gets over to London and establishes Free France. My man. Yeah. <laughs> and Tati finds work as a cabaret as a cabaret performer, uh, working at. Leon Volterra's Lido de Paris um with sporting impressions from 1940 to 1942.
0: And like we were talking about before we started rolling like just the humanism in his film you get the sense that he's, you know, a very captive yeah. performer in that regard.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing I wanted to bring up like with him living in within Vichy France, there's no indication because he fought for the Army of France, there's no indication that he Stayed in the Vichy government because he agreed with the Vichy government's decision to cede power over to the Nazis. I, in all the research that I searched up this week, I could not find any, any one person out there going like, "Jachty was a secret Nazi." Like so, like there's, it's just interesting to note that he is one of these few performers, of any kind, not even film. Let's talk like we're talking about like a musical performer at this point. Yes, who stays in an occupied area during World War II. And is living through it. One of the few, not the only one, but one of the few that especially has been discussed on this show. And I, I found it interesting when you brought up the humanism quality of it. Is that clearly when Tati's in here, he is seeing suffering. Under oh, various without a doubt. with Under various different circumstances, through prejudice, through that occupation, through the behavior of boorish racist assholes.
0: Oh, the paranoia that has to be running just through
2: it's it, it I think if anything it helps compel him further towards comedy because it's almost like it's this release that you get from that from that particular pain um or you
0: can th- imagine it disappears for a moment when he's when he's um miming you know it's speculative but I imagine he's on stage and just just for a moment kind of all the trauma and paranoia and and everything that's going on under the vichy government he's uh able to let go of. Just just for those moments.
2: Yeah. And it's and it's that escape period, which other people were able to uh, indulge in as well. And one of those people who indulged in it uh, was Fred Oran. Um, And I hope I'm pronouncing some of these names right. If I'm not, you can feel free to send bricks to my window. I, I, I don't care. I don't know why you'd send the brick to the window. You could just come to the house and throw it. Yeah, as
0: you parle on français, I'll only correct you if I know uh, <laughs> if I catch it.
2: <laughs> I I need Sterling here as the French my French police. So he's not. You you don't have to come in each each week physically, but I'll have you on Skype and you can just listen in or through Clubhouse. Why don't you just use the Clubhouse app and just speak in every time that you hear a bad French phraseology and just go ah 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 no 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 <laughs> no <laughs> no no. What, wait, what did I do now, Sterling? No. 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 You're not going to even clarify for me? No. No. Are you having a fun time? Can no. you say yes? No. <laughs> does your dog bite? No. But you said your dog does not bite. He's not my dog. Um, <laughs> Pink Panther, everybody. They'll be talked about. Um, but yes, Fred Oran discovers him. And he actually considers tati as a uh a substitute a stand-in i guess i should say a stand-in for jean-louis barral in the production that frederan was doing of children of paradise for film Mm -hmm. now jean-louis actually did make the commitment work in the documentary for magnificent tati they give the indication that jean-louis was not so much unreliable it's just that he was so loaded with commitments that there was no guarantee he was actually going to fulfill them. It seemed like that,
0: or there might even have been some sort of a travel logistic problem, which you could see with like, you know, different fronts and alliances, like maybe being a factor, but
2: that would be great if that was part of the, the, the bargaining table, uh, in the, uh, peace treaties after the war is, can Jean Louis come, (laughs) come to make children of paradise out of everything that needs to be discussed. A mime is of the most import because Fred Oran demands it. <laughs> um but no Oran ends up using Jean Louis, but he is impressed by Tati to the point where So impressed that they form a production company together, Caddy Films. Yes. And it's within this Tati gets his first directing break for the School for Postman or and I will get this wrong, so I am sorry. Le École des Fractures.
0: I felt like I was there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Zach. It's like you just became French Zach for like, les Zach for five. Yeah. The
0: warm <laughs> breeze coming off the Rhine.
2: Yeah. You could just smell the cigarettes in the air and the wine and the, uh, in the breeze. And
0: yeah, th- I, suddenly this room got more pretentious. Yeah, I don't exactly. know what happened.
2: Sud- suddenly I'm having a strong desire to punch you with a Jean-Luc Godard Criterion box set. Wham.
0: <laughs> I'd block you with a Jean-Luc Picard uh, stare. Jean-Luc
2: Picard. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah, so he makes school for Postman. And you uh, saw clips of that. You haven't watched the whole thing?
2: Uh, no, I, yeah, I've only watched the clips of it. I'll, um, I'll loan you that. Yeah, I'm going to need to get more Tati on my hands. But shall I, I like, go through it? Yeah. Or would I, that disrupt your thread? No, I would say go through it, because it's important for people to understand how this lays into jour de fête
0: So at school for postman, or as Zach likes to call it Le Coil fractures. Indeed. <Oui>. See. <laughs>
2: si. allez, um. allez, allez. <laughs> um
0: it is a it's a pretty simple, kind of straightforward short um that you would get I think watching like some of the early chaplains, mm-hmm. um, the he, senates. you he, know, yeah,
2: when he's working at yeah with Senate's Company and forming the Tramp persona.
0: Exactly, mm-hmm. you're seeing just these. Um, it's kind of just a reel of gags. Mm-hmm. Um, it opens with uh, three postmen on stationary bikes. And so there's
2: three of them.
1: Shit.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are three. Um, three postmen. They're on stationary bikes, and then there's sort of uh, like a squeaky little. Um, Commandant or lieutenant or something. And he's drilling them on their postman skills. And they've pitched his voice up <laughs> so that when he's speaking, it's like, <laughs> um, It's like I it was there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's going full helium, uh, which is like quite comedic already because he's very short and they're clearly playing on some Napoleon sort of aspects.
2: Oh, there we go. Because
0: um, he's like a real sourpuss. To stick um, up his ass that kind of. Yeah, and he's having them. Ride stationary bikes, and they're doing like, okay, now deliver a letter. Now dismount. Now mount. Now pedal like you have normal mail, and then they're like, now pedal like it's a telegram, and then suddenly they pick up the pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I forget exactly what the line is, but he asks for something, and then Tati's character, who's who's positioned in the center, like he's clearly is the star even at this early scene. Um, pantomimes taking a drink, and everyone sort of freezes in the room, and he says like, what? You know, <laughs> people ask us to drink with them. Yeah, Um,
2: Yeah, well, you're making this seem like it's my fault.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Nobody. this is Franz. Like, (laughs) we drink. Um, Nobody thinks it's funny. And then, you know, that's enough, boys. Like, go out and deliver those letters. And then we get uh, what is essentially the third act of this film, um, which is, like, in the context of the film when he decides he's going hyperdrive mode. But we get this uh, 12-minute sequence where he... Um, Like the the sequences that you see here repeated are like the flipping the bag Mm -hmm. to then knock a hat off of someone else Which uh, I watched like over and over again because it's such a perfectly executed bit Mm -hmm. Um, He he does the hitching the ride on the
2: truck So then that is an early one that is perfected that I I didn't see the clips of that But I Uh saw some of the elements of him dancing in the bar. He Uh, does
0: the dancing in the bar. Yeah, Uh, the bell tower gag Mm. That's in this. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that's the same footage. (laughs) <laughs> uh, i watched them both uh side by side
2: you look frame by frame as richard johnson would say on this show i watched them both frame by frame,
0: and uh yeah i'm fairly certain uh when he does the truck gag in this one it's clearly like in the short it's very much a rear projection yeah uh and then here it seems fairly clear that he's like really on the back of a truck yeah
2: um but, but in regardless of how it like even if he's splicing that in there it it kind of comes to a point that that will be brought up by the end of the short films discussion because it's kind of insane how this is a, a template for something we experience today in film right and um but all this to say that he's establishing all these gags up front in this short film mm-hmm. and you know uh I have not dealt with this necessarily in a specific uh, successful manner, but I have known people who have done this successfully, and it's really cool to watch when they do it. When you take a short film as your base premise and that becomes the basis for a feature film. Now,
0: I saw Bottle Rocket in 92 before it was cool.
2: Oh, really? (laughs) Smoking your cigarette. Yeah, I did that. I knew about Radiohead. I knew... All about. I saw him at
0: a house party. They were not very tight. <laughs> uh,
2: I, I, when I was, when I was, when I was just a mere teenager, I swear to God, Spaced was the greatest thing I had ever hacked into on British television. And now everybody just loves Scott Pilgrim, and I don't get it. <laughs> um, I, I like. I, by the way, I do appreciate pretentious French usses. Where. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, we're going
0: to put in a sound effect of like a cigarette draw, an, please, an over ac- that bit. An accordion. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> and a little...
0: <laughs> distant shore laps yeah. as well. Uh, um,
2: but like that whole idea of making a short film and it becoming a feature film, it, the difference being this, though, is that Ferdoran had already set up that feature films were going to be produced under this company. Right. The only thing that wasn't cemented was Tatia's director. Right. Uh,
0: am I mistaken in thinking that that happened just due to like a scheduling? It was a
2: scheduling conflict, yeah. And there was a dropout point where Tati, it's not like he had a burning desire from from what I read. It just sounds like he just said like, okay, this is the next thing I'll take on. But he embraces the challenge Mm -hmm. because he, Jour de Fête is his film school. Right. And the Postman School is like the movie you make in high school, where you're aware of how to do the how to technically do the job, mm-hmm. and that's not to denigrate Tati's abilities by any stretch, because clearly, from from all indication, it seems like his his mastery of certain things is already taking shape. But he didn't have mastery as a director;
0: that that really was like his first time in the seat. Yeah, and,
2: um... and it's evident in *Jour de Fête* in certain respects, not just because of the camera work that you were alluding to earlier on, but you know, there's. There's elements of the story that are not as tight.
0: Yeah, and there are certain gags that, like, you can tell you can tell watching his later films that if he were to like redo that gag, mm-hmm. um, he would probably like uh, the first time I watched Jour de um, there were a couple gags I didn't get just because of kind of the language in the editing. Yeah, it's not quite as clear. And then uh, you watch it a second or third time, and like you just kind of you're looking for it, and it's there, and like it is more funny. The instincts are always like really spot on. The execution is a little rough, but obviously he liked directing. Anyone who's directed a film, um, it's a pretty terrible existence, like <laughs> especially on like a shoestring budget in a French village, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, if you don't love it, like you're gonna find something else to do. You're not gonna come back over and over again. No. And, 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 and that he could have just as easily been a star. That other people directed.
2: Exactly. That's that's the thing that amazes me is that he's not it's not like an Orson Welles where he's doing it because I want to. He's going in because it's almost just like out of necessity and in fact a lot of the crew members are also cast members mm-hmm. and cast members are crew members and everybody a lot of the
1: people
0: are just villagers. Yeah,
2: they're just all it's it's a, it's a naturalist setting, which is the one other thing that signifies a difference between this and American comedies is that American comedies of the early silent era and the early talking era era to a slight extent. I think this is primarily silent. They were shooting on location. Mm -hmm. They were shooting out in the middle of an actual aesthetic and setting. Early gangster movies are shot in the Bowerys. These guys knew that if you get that aesthetic in, Mm -hmm. in the actual setting, it lended authenticity. And it's giving an audience... Early on in, uh, in 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 the film viewing landscape, a realism that they may not experience if they live in the middle of the country or if they live in a more elite area of mm-hmm. the country, they're not necessarily visiting the Bowery. And Tati is presenting a village a village quality of France that feels naive in a post war world, but. Yeah also doesn't like but it doesn't feel disingenuous like it he's not like it's not like he's astounding of eva- espousing the virtues of a simplistic lifestyle really
0: no no he doesn't seem to have i mean he will time and time again have this theme in his works of uh sort of a pastoral or a slower way of life uh running up against technology um Which is something
2: that Griffith and Wells dealt dealt in in a lot of their films,
0: right? And it and it, but it never seems like overly sentimental. It's it's always done. um, The moment where he stops the car for the kids, Mm -hmm. for example, it's like it's not scolding. It's just simply a conflict, and yeah, it. But it's something that over and
2: and it can be solved. That's the big thing. It can be solved. Right. Not. Uh. It's not like the entirety of it is going to take it over, and. And the one thing that this film does possess is like when it is talking about efficiency and momentum within uh, a changing world mechanically. He's not, he's not condemning the march of progress.
0: No, it's is it in the documentary where they point out, um, or perhaps it was in an article, but they they're very clear to highlight that like as much as uh, Tati. Is showing the conflict of the March of Progress with like what's coming before it. Uh, he also is like the first person to jump on new technology. He wants to shoot this film in color.
2: I'm glad you brought that up, because we got to talk about before we even talk about major points of this plot. We've got about talk about Thomson color. Thomson color. Thomson color. A film process for color that. <laughs> was one and done here
0: <laughs> yeah uh, I, I, bit of context they shoot this movie on two cameras uh, they Tati so there's a documentary on the criterion that goes into this this exploration between um,
2: the restoration of the color print that yeah existed. in
0: 95 his daughter is able to create a color print with the help of um,
2: Francois Eddie
0: Francois Eddy, yeah and um, there's a, a documentary all about the process and they're doing like exhaustive research uh because and there's a disagreement there where they, they interview someone who insists that it uh it was their idea to do it in color. And then you find like a slightly more earnest gentleman who's saying like, No, it was Tati. Like Tati really wanted to make the first French
2: color film. Um he uh He's just like, Well if I'm gonna direct, you gotta go big or go home. Yeah, and, and that I, kind I of come speaks... from the mime world. You gotta express loudly without <laughs> Not express loudly. You've got to go. You've got to express broadly.
0: Yeah, it's eloquent, uh, eloquent movement in broad strokes. Mm -hmm. And so he's shooting it on color, and then I think the producer or someone says, "Like, let's have a backup camera, just because this color process that we're using hasn't been done yet." Um, So they end up shooting with two cameras. So every shot in this movie is shot on two cameras. Mm -hmm. Uh, The film that exists uh, until 1995 is the black and white footage because. Like you were saying with Thompson color.
2: Yeah, the Thompson color thing did not work out because this this process essentially gets run into the ground. The black and white version is all they've got.
0: Basically, like a factory burns down and then no one knows how to colorize this footage. Their color is in the film somewhere, but no one knows exactly what chemicals or exactly how to get the color out yeah. of the footage.
2: So it's basically like a ticking time. It's like a... It's like if you if you add the wrong element, the whole thing goes away. right. So it would be valueless period. And you know I don't think that we we take color for granted in film, I think because especially today,
0: especially today. yeah the sensitivity of sensors and everything.
2: Yeah, exactly. but like at the time, you have the three strips the three strip Technicolor process in America being perfected and in Britain too because the archers and Cardiff are using it because mm-hmm. it's the most amazing thing they've ever experienced. And meanwhile, other, other areas of the world are experimenting with color and using these other processes that are imperfect. And so as a result, the I, I don't know if I sound dumb saying this, but I, I thought about this in the sense of when we think of European cinema in the late 40s, into the 50s, up into the 60s, before the American New Wave kicks in, the stereotypical image... Of those films is fancy schmancy black and white artistic movie. And nor- more often than not, you're you're drawing from Godard or you're drawing from Truffaut. But a lot of that is not because, or not all of it, but like there's a good chunk of it that's not done out of artistic intent. It's done out of what they had access to. And if you're a country coming out of a post-war situation where you are among those that were beat to shit... By the German juggernaut as it stood at that point in the Nazi menace,
0: and just like the the way the war ravages, if you're fighting on the home front, both <laughs> sides are fighting where you live exactly bullets are flying both ways, buildings are coming
2: down, yeah, and there's no I, I mean we we've just we've dispelled this notion on the show before where you know America emerges as a superpower because it's one of the few things standing mm. after the war because we're one of the ones that gets barely touched. And so, of course, we still have the ability to process three-strip Technicolor, and Britain has a lot of access through America to acquire Technicolor stock. And in fact, there were reasons why A Matter of Life and Death was a difficult production for the the monochrome elements because of the amount of monochrome film available or the amount of Technicolor stock available to actually accomplish the film that the British government wanted out of Paul and Pressburger's arguably big, big break. And learning about Thompson color kind of teaches me this lesson of just like, you know, the, the stereotype that exists of Mm neorealism or French new wave and all these other elements. It's not, uh, it's not conglomerated into one monster. It's composed of separate entities. And the biggest one of all is that Tati is, I would argue far from pretentious here at the very least in this movie. And, is extremely accessible. This is a film that I was told, like literally sending over to my co-host Ryan going, like, I know you don't like French movies, but you will love the shit out of this movie. It's, it's astounding. And the black and white only makes it more charming in a lot of respects. But as you said with the color, the documentary I watched did show elements of the color restoration. I got to be honest, I prefer the black and white version because it just feels a little bit more... Uh, it just feels more true to the premise of this cyclist.
0: <laughs> I do too. Part of me thinks that uh, I watched it first and, and maybe that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I, I went back and rewatched it in color. Um, they do a great job restoring it. Like if Knowing the story when you see the color version on the Criterion, it is remarkable what they're able to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of that too is digital technology. On the like you know 4k remaster yeah in addition to the chemical process that they had to sleuth down but uh, yeah there's something about the black and white like <laughs> you're saying just the pastoral setting and the simplicity of it this movie feels like it's in black and white I think color's a big swing for him
2: uh, this early on especially yeah
0: he'll the rest of his films will be in color and like they they don't feel out of place in that realm mm-hmm uh, but this one, there's something very effective about the black and
2: white. Yeah, and as we will, we'll go into the plot of the film right now. Um, I will do uh, credits to the best of my ability with the French names involved. But directed by Jacques Tati, written by Henri Marquette, Rene Wheeler, Jacques Tati, produced by Andre Palive and Fred Oran, starring Guy Decombe, Jacques Tati, Paul Francoeur. These are your three key players. However, Jacques Tati is not credited in the opening credits. He is as the act as an actor, he is not credited as an actor at the opening credits of the movie. He doesn't get the same billing as the other actors who are represented as Marcel and Roger. Mm. I didn't know exactly why that was, and I wasn't sure if you knew, but. I found it interesting that there was no the most of the credits that he's getting are for the actual production efforts of it. That detail escaped me. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah, that's curious. I I didn't notice it right away either because one I don't read French. But <laughs> two was that like I, I was going through research it says like he's not credited and I'm like, "Uh, excuse me." And then before you got here I rewatched it and I'm like, "Yeah, he's not in the credit listing for the cast." And I was I was puzzled by that. And I wasn't sure if there was an exact reason for Tati doing that. I guess it doesn't matter because if Tati is well-known in France at this point, it's kind of irrelevant, but it's interesting to note that it's there. Um, The other interesting thing to notice is that we are not in a studio. Mm -hmm. We are out in a French landscape. We are on location, which is something that is separating itself out already from comedies of this particular era in America that are not, always going on location for comedies in particular.
0: I'm glad you brought up that village too, because that village has a very specific name. Mm. Um, And that name is... Is it saint uh, serve
2: Sir indre Yeah,
0: I believe it's uh, saint uh, serve Sir indre But he was there when they did the short, and Mm -hmm. then he had said something to the effect of, I had such a warm time here, like I'd like to come back here and we'll do the feature when the war is over and then like yeah very much is able to return to that village yeah and make this um,
2: and with and people f- involved yeah yeah
0: yeah and then i found through trivia that like they've actually erected sort of a shrine to this film there i think when the 50th anniversary hit like you can go there and visit and buy trinkets and like watch this movie and
2: is there a statue of him sketching off the back of the truck <laughs> like the rocky statue in philadelphia <laughs>
0: uh if only i would want to uh, i would want a statue of the um Gotta like my favorite gag in the movie, but um, when he
2: catches the chicken.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's that what would, I would be a want. great
2: statue. We can go visit it and take photos. <laughs>
0: uh, but yeah, reading that while doing research, I suddenly have a new reason to go to France. Yeah.
2: Well, the, I mean, amongst the, the litany of other reasons, that's that now it's just like that would be my prime destination now. Would be I'd, the first place I'd go. Yeah, exactly. Because I've never like had any express desire to see Paris beyond the Cinémathèque, mm. but. Now it's let's go to this village and see the shrine to Tati. and see if we can recreate the be- the, the pole the, the pole erecting scene and <laughs> yeah and we, can we can we ride our bikes into a tavern and then go up to the top level and then somebody shakes their fists going like, you damn fucking tourists keep doing this to my fucking establishment. And then, yeah,
0: then we have to do it again. yeah In exactly. spirit of the film it has to repeat at least once. That, uh, that,
2: you know that's how I travel.
0: Whenever <laughs> I go somewhere, I rent a bike and I have to see the countryside <laughs> that way. That's the other reason I love this movie and pick
2: this movie. Yeah.
0: Because it's bike-centric. They I'm a op- sucker for a good bike film.
2: The opening shot, by the way, before even the bikes get in, you were talking about countryside? Yeah. This image of the little boy, who's kind of like this weird thematic through line, because there's elements of it seeing it through the eyes of a child in certain respects. That All of his work, too. That'll be a motif. Uh, I,
0: I think I wrote that down. It was just the idea of like a motif in a Tati film is an excited boy um, running through the countryside after further excitement, or running through the scene just kind of seeking pleasure um, or joy and,
2: uh, and like that'll happen over and over again. I wondered if Spielberg watched Tati because there's elements of excitement from the perspective that Spielberg presents in a lot of his films um, that we all know that look we, the Spielberg look we've, we've yeah. seen it uh, compiled in clip upon clip. And then we've seen it uh, replicated uh, poorly
0: many <laughs> times. <laughs>
2: In so many ways, in so many fashions, from from Abrams on down, and I, you know, like, I, actually, I, I like Super 8, but that's just because I enjoyed, I had a fun time watching it in the theater, going like, right on, this is fun, Bruce Greenwood's an alien, I can't complain right yeah, now. Yeah,
0: I was entertained.
2: Yeah, but the, regardless, though, is that, like, that, that there's that impact of experiencing a arguably wackadoo world to use an American term or even a, it, I don't think this term exists, wackadoo this idea that like an insane thing is about to happen because the movie doesn't start off with <clears throat> Francois the Prostman it starts off with Marcel and Roger mm-hmm. which are and if I'm going off of the French pronunciation Marcel and Roger or you know like however you might pronounce it yeah these two carnies
0: <laughs> Showing up in this village for uh, jour de fête, which would be celebration day. Yeah, Uh, and (laughs) it's clearly like a maypole kind of
2: festival. Yeah, and to the point of actually setting up that little pole in the square. Yeah, and uh, the when they come into town, first of all, they're bringing they've got these trucks in the back like that are carrying all these like individual horses that they're going to unload and stuff for the merry-go-round.
0: Yeah, for the merry-go-round, it's it's a truck bed full of fake horses.
2: and it's just like there's childlike wonder like all the kids are already like too excited they're just grabbing at these at all the assembly pieces for the for this merry-go-round and let's be let's be frank frank, frank let's be frank <laughs> that's the title of this episode now let's be frank um Roger is the one who is the rather thinner person smoking a cigarette.
0: He looks the most French, too. Yeah. He looks like that uh, great actor that's in Amelie and all those uh, movies of the French like 90s, you know. Yeah. Um uh, we'll I will insert that. I
2: in. had it I had an equivalent for him and I don't know if you'd get this in the Simpsons season 1 when Bart goes to France as an exchange student. Oh yeah. One of actually the, both of them kind of look like uglier versions. Of Marcel and Roger. And I was, I was, I've never tried to look into this, and maybe I need to do this after the fact and addend this addend this later. I was wondering if, like, did, did the writers of The Simpsons like Jour de Fet? Because they kind of look similar in the way they're designed as characters. It also could be just basic French stereotyped drawing. Mm-hmm. But Roger in particular has a cigarette dangling out of his mouth the entire time. And he's in the back of this carnival caravan with his. I could not tell if this was his wife because it kind of is irrelevant. I'm
0: certain that it's his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, but
2: yeah, no. Maybe there's an indication that it might be his sister at one point for me because of the woman that comes from the upstairs. Uh,
0: you're talking about, um, Jeanette. Yeah, Jeanette. Yes, Jeanette, Mademoiselle Jeanette. Mademoiselle Jeanette. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there is a. Uh, that, that, that struck me as the French spirit of like, maybe I can sneak off and have an affair. Yeah.
2: Okay. You know, yeah. and
0: I kind of think that like the movie was playing on that because uh, there's this playfulness between this couple. They, they both live in this carny wagon um, with the driver and I guess, yeah, there's sort of a traveling act bringing uh, newsreels and uh, movies and entertainment. There's a merry-go-round and they're showing up at the countryside to set up this carnival. There's for There's roulette
2: games. There's prizes. Oh
0: yeah, there's some great games. Yeah, um, it, it's a like a whole troop seems to arrive off screen at some point, but we stay mostly with these three characters who yeah. enter this village.
2: With Roger and Marcel being our entry points in the in the movie, which is interesting because of what the movie ends up becoming. And there is this lovely scene, and and I guess within the grand scheme of. Working with English subtitles, I, I I started having ideas spark off in my head of how you could adapt this to the modern day and like reference this movie directly at the same time. Is that they they sh- they describe they have they have a, a gen a, like a, a a Barker of sorts announcing what the picture show will be, mm-hmm. and amongst it, it features the great American actor Jim Parker. <laughs> I was just like I, I was just like, have we? Tati is already like showing a flair for funny names if this is going to be a trope of his because Jim Parker does sound like the most typical American name that might come out of a French a French mindset in the late 1940s because it does sound very of the West and or could be a cowboy star um, and there's this you can hear it's clearly a French made film of a Western talking about the the biggest. The biggest, uh, the biggest cattleman in Arizona, <laughs> the biggest strongman in Arizona—one of those two phraseologies. But as the audio of this fake film is playing, we see this silent but clearly infatuated interaction between Jeanette and Roger. And there was something about the construction of the way that was shot in this two-shot and then going into coverage mm-hmm. with them reacting off of each other and playing off of each other, where I was like, I'm, "It's like I'm almost wondering." and maybe I've missed this in my film digestion in over the last 30 years is somebody homaging this particular moment directly in some capacity, because it seems like one that would have been lifted right away. The moment somebody could, even if it was within French cinema itself in the nineties or two thousands, but
1: yeah,
0: I couldn't quite think of an analog, but like um, there, there's something, yeah, there's something beautiful about that scene. It's like essentially a meet cute. Yeah. um, But these characters lock eyes, Um, early on and and the one guy's either in a relationship or married Mm -hmm. uh, Roger and then you have Jeanette and then she happens to wander down to see what's playing and he's setting up and there's like really just this casual like flirtation between them and it's all done uh, just through looks yeah while the uh, the soundtrack of this movie because the projector is in there and he's like winding the film and it just happens
2: to start playing. And yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, he cannot set up this projector. He's having so much difficulty. Yeah, I just felt bad for him.
0: <laughs> he looked very frustrated. He looked a little
2: hot. He's just like, oh my god, I'm just so used to DLP. Like, I don't understand why you don't. You just don't put in the hard drive here. You've got to actually thread the film. Oh Jesus! <laughs> did you see the uh, the fan in front of the lens? I did. Yeah. Um, I was like, that's a nice little touch. But in particular, in this moment here. I like that we're not having them do dialogue. We're having them give this give this relationship building through silent cinema with something underlaying it to punctuate the moment. Um and it's a it's one of, of a series of little events that operate as a day in the life of this village. Mm-hmm. You have a woman who's operating amongst the bar that is designing her own dress. Yeah. Uh, or Getting it off of a design and passing it off as her own yes. was my impression of it. Yeah, which is such a throwaway gag, but it's great. It's such a nice little moment, and then also capping it off with somebody with the with the husband with the wife of of somebody admiring it, coming and then noticing it, going like, "This bucket needed didn't need to be dumped." What yeah, a-. she's like
0: emptying a, a bedpan or, or yeah. some sort of a bucket.
2: Exactly. Like it's not, but she she makes the comment of like, "This is not full. What a load!" And meanwhile, a character that you brought up early on. <laughs> this old woman our lovely old woman who uh, running through this village running through this village i am a sucker S- sterling for the characters who are essentially your your your, your uh fanciful magical guide mm-hmm. that wander in and out as they so please um uh, which in some ways is perfected albeit imperfectly with the Hudsucker Proxy, with the man who operates the clock, <laughs> yeah, um, and him going just like you know, there's some people say there was a story about the 52nd floor, but that's another time. <laughs> yeah. And then, goodbye, everybody. That you just watched the Hudsucker Proxy, except you didn't because you didn't go to the theater when it came out, and um, or just people wandering in and out of the narrative. In No Brother, Where Art though, they have like uh, the the man running the hand car, and he goes like, "I work for no man. I have no home." And then, you know, George Clooney giving his screwball shtick with it. Yeah,
0: and the tradition obviously comes from theater as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. You have like this it, this expository, and I'm not as theater illiterate or even with Greek dramatic structure, but I believe it's a chorus or like a... Uh, I was
0: going to cite it as a chorus, yeah. but uh, I could be mistaken as well. It's been a while. Um, what, but it's definitely a character that has their finger on the pulse of the world and will come in and out when needed, just to give you like a little bit of context or give you some sort of like meta context which is also and really I, fascinating.
2: And I got to be honest because I was trying to identify her, I don't know who plays this woman.
0: I couldn't say she might literally live in that village,
2: but regardless of who she is, she is she is like the badass li- you know how everybody idolizes when they look at the cat lady on the Simpsons or anything like that and go like that's the kind of life I want to live. You that's, almost want to yeah. you almost want to show them this film and be like this is where it all started, walking around with a goat in Paris or in France. <laughs> And just literally commenting on everybody's lives.
0: Yeah, taking it back to the hunchback. Yeah. You know, she's got a bit of a stoop. She's walking with a cane. She has a goat at all times.
2: And yet she's somehow the best person in this village because she's the one person that's not fucking with Francois by the end of this movie.
0: Right. I mean, she like she has a little judgment. She editorializes quite a bit. Um, yeah, exactly. Can you think she, of uh, people of this time, like real pioneers of uh, an oral space, soundscape pioneers of this time? I know your knowledge of uh, like golden age Hollywood. <sighs> oh um, um it's a little bit deeper than mine and i can't really think of like a an analog to this sort of curious soundscape uh which is another thing that you come to really appreciate about tati
2: there that the, how the,
0: playful the ex- his soundtracks are
2: the exact names escape me from moment to moment like right now within the last couple of weeks i've been doing research on the looney tunes and tregg brown's sound effects work in the looney tunes was very innovative Oh, in no, re- yeah, absolutely. In that regard, and I guess this does relate into comedy in a certain respect, where you are creating you are creating uh, things out of thin air at this point in time.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up animation, because the sound designs of the Tati films very much feel tied to more of an animated universe yeah, now than the, they do, like, talkies.
2: Yeah, the difference that I would say with Treg Brown as opposed to the sound designer on this film is that Treg Brown's working, obviously, with very broad, punctuated slap you around for seven minutes sound effects. Whereas Tati is working in smaller elements. There's actually elements of this where the score actually dips mm-hmm. almost as if though it's f- almost like the, one of the instrument players falls off balance and falls off their chair. So the music stops abruptly and it's not like off putting. It's just something to note as a punctuation on the end of each scene that sometimes you can hear it. Mm-hmm. And and as far as sound effects are concerned, There are elements of the sound that, like, are, as I said before, selective, where Tati's only putting in things where he needs to. And if he's working with MOS, then he is just kind of already taking stock of what's important to him by the the final print of this film in terms of where that sound goes. So, in a sense, he creates a Hitchcock movie in the ADR room. Yeah, absolutely. Which I found very intriguing because the most prevalent example that many many people might have today who aren't of Sterling and I's age would be in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when you're talking about like Rick Dalton not wanting to go to Italy to make Italian westerns because he didn't it's not that he doesn't want to do it because of this reason but one of the reasons explained that Rick Dalton doesn't like doing it eventually is because he doesn't approve of the dubbing process that was going on in Italy Um, and which was a normal process for them
0: I'm glad you brought that up because uh, thinking of other people borrowing from traditions of just like playful oralness would be like definitely the, uh, and that's oral, uh, A-U-R-A-L. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, Sergio Leone mm-hmm. and the the Morricone scores and the, and the way that he throws sound around yeah uh, definitely come to mind. Um,
2: and part of it comes from economy too. It's not all of it comes from an artistic intent. I feel like a lot of it comes from economy too. Because you are trying to work with what you have. I mean, how many
0: times have you been on an indie shoot and they're like, ah, just MOS this shot because I don't have time to worry about uh, this plane's going overhead.
2: Exactly. Um, And that's where art comes from. Uh, Art is a series of accidents in many respects, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Much like Jack Benny's career. Everything that happened to me happened on accident.
0: But shall we (laughs) we introduce uh, um, Francois?
2: Well, we got to wait for him to get here. Oh, wait, no, he's passing down the hill and he's going through a bunch of cows. Bling, Holy
1: shit. Bring, 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 that
2: bell, that bring, bell. Bring.
1: Oh, God.
0: Um, God. So uh, Tati introduces the character of uh, Francois, the, the postman, mm-hmm. by having him ride through the countryside. Um, and there are really only like two sounds that play over it. He's riding through and there's this this like jingle bell, this one lone bell that hangs from his bike. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Tati has this kind of beautiful tone that he strikes. And that will be what like really scores and becomes his motif throughout the film. It's very much like that Peter and the wolf. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Like the way the, some of the elements of the flute operate in there and flutter in and out. Giving every
0: character uh, a theme or a motif or at least assigning them an instrument. Yeah. Uh, So he is the bell. And as long as he's tethered to the bike, like he will be, uh, either like announced or, or there'll be a punchline added, or he'll just be accented by this bell ringing, and or something
2: at his expense is about to occur. Yes,
0: and and he's riding through the country, and we have a bell, and we have the buzzing of some sort of a very annoying biting insect, <laughs> and this introduction I think brings in everything about Tati that makes uh, that will like go to form his career. It's the, the um the really deliberate oral space played over a deep um, depth of field mm-hmm. with multiple planes of action. So he rides up. We have, uh, the camera is looking down over the shoulder of a farmer who was cutting grass with a, uh, scythe.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like a guy, he's, he's working with older farming equipment.
0: Yeah. So we have a farmer and he's witnessing, um, Francois, the mailman come up and that's, uh, that's like f- deep in the background. We have, um, Francois riding through, and we have the bell, and we have the sound of the fly, mm-hmm. and then we have the camera way back on top of this hill uh, with the farmer. It's sort of an OTS, yeah. And uh, the farmer's looking down, observing this. A lot of this movie, um, and a lot of Tati's films as well, will be just having other characters observe other things that are happening in the
2: film. In in a, res- in, a in a certain respect, he's going through multiple perspectives to uh, have uh, have a have a tangible connection to observing the insanity. Yeah, the Absolutely.
0: kaleidoscopic humanism of just multiple vantage points and multiple points of view being applied. Exactly, you can mistake it for thinking that there's no point of view in the film, but really you're just seeing a democ like a democratic point of view in mm-hmm. a lot of frames where we're getting multiple perspectives. Um,
2: but and I and I feel like that would be disingenuous to Tati to claim that there's no perspective in here because there is. There's there's thematic perspective as well as visual perspective.
0: To a passive observer, it could come off that yeah, way. I guess because so, yeah. his films are not tethered to like protagonist walks in and everything is uh, either through the eyes of the protagonist or through the eyes yeah of an antagonist in relation to the protagonist. Um,
2: yeah, agreed.
0: So we have this biting insect that's bothering uh, Francois, and it's it's highlighted. Yeah, he's waving. At the bug, he's doing like really great, uh, sort of like mimic work, yeah. Uh, to be on a bike and be kind of almost crashing, and this insect's clearly bugging him, and he's waving it off. And then at some point, he delivers some kind of a blow to the insect, um, that we hear, uh, and then the insect flies off, and then all of a sudden, the farmer in the foreground is being attacked by this insect, yeah who then fights the insect for a while. The camera pans over Francois is making his rounds mm-hmm. and then the insect leaves the farmer again and goes back to bother Francois yeah. uh, on his way to the, to the village. Mm-hmm. And like the, the elements that you get with both like, you know, the fly or the insect is only alluded to through a soundscape.
2: It's not through a visual. There's no close up of a fly. There's no establishing shot of a fly. There's no practical shot, pr- practical effects shot of a fly. And I think that that's ballsy, yeah, for your first film, to trust the audience that way,
0: and I mean, to have faith in your own mimic kind of talent, yeah, that we can really sell this, mm-hmm. and then to shift the focus between these two people on two different planes, yeah in the frame yeah, and that, that introduction I, of him, it's interesting because it's the introduction of Tati, yeah, but that introduction of him really is a microcosm of his entire career or what fascinates him as a filmmaker,
2: which is good to know. As I go down my own little journey of him, because I get this, um, from a, from a, from a character perspective and just observing the way that Francois behaves. I get this, I I get this strange sense of ambition clouded in typical human foibles, which are my stock and trade when it comes to what I appreciate in comedy. Um, in a sense, that's why I've talked about Benny as often as I have, because there is a, a element of our own faults and frailties found in Francois. But unlike a Benny, it's not used as a butt of a joke. Francois is almost kind of like persevering for us in a lot of respects. If, if we have an entry point character or a POV character at all, we are Francois to a certain degree in my mind because the way i looked at this was the same amount of ambition that we all possessed to at the very least get by and do a good job at what we're supposed to do or you know not be taken advantage of or not be uh, belittled and berated and we see francois go through this throughout the entire movie to an extent where the characterization for me him uh, the visual of him weaving ducking and weaving through a bunch of cows oh, yeah. to get through his path that sticks out to me as kind of like a a, a one shot summation of what he's going to end up doing for the majority of this movie prior to the finale that we get of the big tour to postman, mm-hmm. and uh, it, by the time he arrives in this village, we've already established that Marcel and Roger are setting up the fair, and or as we already established, Roger's you know getting an homage in that Marcel goes in for a haircut, and I talk the briefest of haircuts I've ever imagined. Well, this that's a is the, that's a great joke. That is an amazing joke and it and it's one of those things where i was just like yeah but that was me in high school where i was just like only chop off a little bit i want to still have long hair (laughs) it's just yeah it makes me laugh every time i watch it it's so relatable and it's and he and he charges him like this full price like a two franc, and he's just like he doesn't know what to charge him at first and then he
0: charges him for a haircut he basically like marcel sits down in the chair uh the barber sweeps and then comes up to him and then pulls his bangs down and cuts them all in one motion and then, then, then Marcel waves him off, stands yeah, he's up. he's like, done. Perfect, that's all I needed, thank you.
2: And he's just like, I, I, I'm i sorry, you've you thrown me for a loop, Mr. Marcel. I have no idea how to deal with this idea. Um, I guess full price because you fucking threw me off.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like as a vegetarian when you ask for something without the meat and then you've, you've <laughs> negated an ingredient. It should be cheaper, but they like sometimes will charge you more. Or just
2: It's like five easy pieces, chicken sandwich,
0: yeah. hold the ch- <laughs> Let's oh, you don't it. want the bacon? Uh, that's an extra dollar. I don't yeah. know what to tell you. About. That that may, I have to think.
2: Yeah, and um, the um, but the other element too of it, we also get a little bit of Roger's wife. I guess we've pretty much established it's his wife. My I believe f- that they're lovers. Yeah, my favorite joke in the movie is actually from her v- dialogue joke. I should say. Oh, go on. Favorite dialogue joke is when she goes, "Where is the dog, Roger?" Roger calls for the dog, and the dog comes from inside the caravan, and she just goes, "Oh, he was in here." <laughs> It's multiple dogs. Yeah, it's like seven dogs. How That's did, the best I, gag? It's a great absurdist gag. Like, how did you not? It, and we and I actually, you know what? She's living in like a half-wide trailer. It's like um, it, I, I I actually am glad I brought up the Looney Tunes. It's like when a Looney Tunes character doesn't realize something's behind them, or like which way did they go, George? And they they think they're talking to somebody else, but they're actually talking to their enemy, or whether it's Bugs Bunny or Elmer Fudd. And it was just like that same logic does apply. And the but just the mundanity of the way that line is delivered, and now that I know it's MOS, it actually kind of like enhances the timing of that gag for me. And but it's one of those throwaway lines because, as I said before, for me the dialogue doesn't stick out as much as the other elements of this film combining. Um, Although, like we'll get to another piece of dialogue that is clearly a a little jab at, at at us here in the U.S. of A. But Francois comes into town and, like, without going into every single event, because there's so many, is that he basically gets used by this town to set up elements of their fair while delivering his mail and while getting berated for being his hapless self
0: yeah they really make a sport out of him and and it does feel like just sort of a jab at this authority that he represents
2: and i wondered if they were like equating him in certain respects to a village idiot but i was also trying to think like does that concept even fall into the categorization of this movie and my answer to myself was i don't think so because it's almost like it's like it it doesn't seem like they actually genuinely hate him but they're just like it's it's like an indifference.
0: They just like to poke at him. Yeah, I think they really just like to poke at him. Like this movie's so fun loving. Yeah. in that regard, and speaking to like Tati's humanism, and perhaps um, you know we can all speculate where he picked that up. But uh, like the village idiot might be the the cross eyed guy, which is the other really great gag, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which borrows from like a lot of traditions and also feels like a Looney Tunes sort of joke.
2: That's a Looney Tunes. That's a Senate gag. That's yeah. That's a uh, you know you've got that in. All sorts of comedy of all generations. Period. We we see that today in Farrelly Brothers movies and Zucker Brothers movies, right? Or Mike Myers movies, even Jay Roach films.
0: So he's like the closest thing to the village idiot, and even him, uh, he gets like these loving close-ups. Yeah. And any punchline that involves him, like it never fe- the joke's never on him. No, he just sort of is. He's part of the joke. Yeah. And
2: And that actually, that's set up in the pole pole setting scene, which I think is the big set piece of the movie at this particular point. He gets Um,
0: roped in uh, because Marceau takes off and then uh, Roger wants to like maybe sniff around town and see if he can find Jeanette.
2: Yeah, so he's just like, oh, I know what I'll do.
0: Well, he rides up the pole. Almost hits him. He rides into the cafe. There's a great gag where, like, oh, he's yeah. suddenly upstairs at the balcony while the proprietor is throwing his bike out like it's a surly drunk.
2: Which I was wondering from the Criterion cut because I got the Criterion version streaming on Prime Video for access to this. Uh-huh. Um, there is a cut that you can see. Yeah, says the transition point. But I have to imagine at the time that this was being seen in 49 or eventually 52 in this country because spoiler alert: this movie came out a couple of years later for us. But, um. That the magic was still intact because folks were already designed to expect jumps in the film with a real change or condition of prints. Yeah. And even as far into the 60s and 70s, the expectation of print quality to be astounding 4K restorations was not even uh, a concept in our brains.
0: No, you could see this on VHS and like you probably wouldn't really pick up on it. Yeah, Even in 4K, like I think the joke works, but you do... The you know you you see the cut
2: yeah you see the cut but it doesn't ruin it's not like other elements when when you see the cut it ruins the experience or throws you off and it's done twice in this movie and each time it still works right um and he does he does that gag he actually delivers mail to a couple different people one of which was a, a, an old lady who has a amongst other things a goat living in her house and the uh, letter gets and a chicken
0: yeah and a chicken which he catches with so much grace
2: yeah and I, first of all we don't we don't appreciate chicken catching at all in this generation anymore and watching that i my my assumption is just like you know what Jacques Tati throughout this entire film is teaching us lessons about how we've all been way too fat and spoiled and lazy
0: yeah this chicken flies through a room full speed he opens the door the chicken makes to escape Jacques Tati while maintaining eye contact with the woman Throws his hand out and then somehow catches the flying chicken by its feet and brings it back in and hands it to her, and then while he's distracted, a goat is able to like eat the telegram from yeah. between his knees.
2: And somewhere out there, Lena and Lily Wachowski were just like, "Well, say, what if that? But if the goat didn't need a letter and he was actually the one."
0: <laughs> yeah, and like, what if the camera did a three sixty while he caught the chicken? Yeah, um,
2: and what if Hugo weaving? But <laughs> <laughs> always Hugo weaving. But uh, you know, it's a like it's a great stunt. Yeah. And his there's another verbal gag about like you know like how dare you like you know why don't you get your goat to read this <laughs> telegram the the it, The amount of absurdism in the dialogue that is present is a delight because there is this element of not caring about a structure per se, and giving allowing the silly to actually be embraced. Because it does go into, I don't want to say Brooksian territory per se, but it, it it does feel about the same kind of level of wackiness. When I get the feeling that anything can happen in a movie, it's touching my heart immediately. And Tati is really good at doing this, as exemplified by not only the pole setting scene, but then he's also like actively trying to set this up while still delivering his mail one man claims that this isn't the letter he's supposed to get. And he goes, then I don't have any mail for you. Quit bothering me. Yeah. (laughs) I love how he's splitting his priorities. He is this most efficient, lovable postman who is just there to help. Even though we are aware as the audience that he's being taken advantage of fully or being made the butt of the joke in certain regards.
0: Yeah. Like you said, he's hapless. He takes his job seriously. Uh, He's constantly getting roped into just like, the raucous uh, happenings of the celebration day I, in the short film there's that joke where they're on the bikes and then he pantomimes taking a drink and he says oh you know people in, they people offer you drinks and uh, that's that scene's not in this but that spirit's in this where he's constantly just being pulled in one direction and then another and uh, it's really like a juggling he he juggles all the through lines and events and they really have nothing to do with him
2: no but they do but they do add further to our enjoyment of the piece because we are it's 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 something that i feel like world building doesn't do a lot in films outside of a franchise. Mm-hmm. And i like that there's a world building here before Francois even enters frame because i get an established reality that i believe in and emotionally connect to. Even if I could give two shits about what happens to Roger and Marcel, given what they put Francois through in this movie, I do feel something for them. Now, granted, it's rage, but <laughs> that's just me being taking it way too personal, going like, Roger and Marcel are fucking high school bullies. They yeah, need they're stop. dicks.
0: But like, the more you watch it, the more... And it really speaks to Tati's uh, humanism, where like, you, you can't have too many hard feelings for anyone oh, no. in this movie.
2: There's actually a moment where Roger and Marcel are actually feeling like really encouraging and we'll get to it. But like, yeah. I do feel like there is like a genuine touch of just like, you know what? We were joking with you, but like, we do actually want to see you pull this off.
0: Well, like he's bummed out. And then at that point they're like, ah, oh, okay, like buddy, let, let's lift them up. They're like still joking, but, uh,
2: but they're like, yeah, but we're, we don't know exactly how to read you as a person, but here, we're going to help you anyway.
0: Well, they're, it's funny too. Cause there are eyes to the village, even though they're outsiders, mm-hmm. but they do identify him before anyone else really he comes out of the cafe and it's like uh, roger and Marceau who really just don't want to set up the maypole but they point him out and they start gassing him up like man we need a really important organized guy who is a born leader and they start listing all these qualities and he just starts getting a little taller and then without any real prompting and they're looking at him waiting for the spell to hit and then suddenly he goes okay that's it. We need a. Uh, we need two people tugging here, and he really does like organize all these people up. Which, yeah. um,
2: it's, it's an interesting. There's an interesting element of labor of of uh the way labor is streamlined and expediated in, in a post war world and how things become a lot more mechanical. And seeing him operate an entire village of people to gather together for this one task is remarkable to watch him. Pretty much, I'm not gonna lie. From all the instruction he's giving, he's technically correct.
0: Oh, he's not wrong. And then when he leaves it almost falls over again. When he when he takes off to deliver the letter to the woman with the goat, he has to run back, uh we just see the pole teetering in the background.
2: And he has to basically put it back in the position to just yeah. be like, all right, now, now don't fuck with it while I go do my mail.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so odd. Like he sets it up, he leaves, he takes his eye off the ball. He's he really is the hero that this town deserves.
2: Yeah, but not the one it needs right now. <laughs> the dark Tati that would be the goat um (laughs) oh actually the goat night yeah yeah the goat night rises Tati begins (laughs) uh Um, in IMAX (laughs) let's
0: see there there there's some other like because a lot of this movie like you were saying the plot doesn't uh really matter they're setting up for a celebration and then there's a carnival and then there's kind of like a hangover
2: well there are mail deliveries where he does talk about the bean uh, the, the pole hitting nearly hitting him on the head he's like I almost got bean by that pole he says this dialogue twice and yeah. what i love is because now because he is beginning to perfect this craft in post He's starting to understand how dialogue can be used for repetitive purposes, uh-huh. because I've always been a theory, of, a fan of the theory of the the rule of three with the Coen Brothers. When they say, right. when they say the same phrase three times within the span of thirty seconds, it makes it funnier the more you say it um like uh like uh, they um they peed on your fucking rug they peed on your fucking rug they peed, peed on, on your fucking, fucking rug mm-hmm. or in the serious man which is he's a fucker that guy's a fucker they're both fuckers and um the uh there's a great indie
0: film called the uh, judy berlin starring like a young eddie falco as well Ooh, um,
2: that sounds like fun <laughs> eddie falco yeah eddie falco, Edie falco yeah. um she has
0: braces it's it's uh one of those fun like film independent movies that came out on vhs like towards the end of like what indies used to be Mm -hmm. um and yeah they just do this bit where we stay with characters during the day of an eclipse and because we're staying with these characters as they go out and just like wander around their small town neighborhoods yeah we hear this lady tell like the same joke it's like the one joke she has and we hear her tell it Three or four times by the end of the film, mm-hmm. like whenever she needs levity, she, that's her. That's what she pulls out of her bag. Yeah, and the characters always react like they're hearing it for the first time because they are. But like we just kind of see her lean on that same joke.
1: And yeah,
2: it's, it's 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 nice, and it's, it's a nice device. It's that, and he has another catchphrase in this movie, which is definitely his T-shirt phrase. Yeah, that takes the cake. And then he slaps his thigh. Yep,
0: or. He's got several pantomimes when he's frustrated.
2: Yeah. And one of the times when he's actually going up to a farmer who's watering his yard, um, he does the spiel about the—he loves telling this story, by the way. He is very happy with telling the story about how the pole almost hit him. He's like, delivering a cake at that point as well. Exactly. And, like—and, by the way, in this triangle thing, like— this. Is,
0: Cake boxes in the 40s like we're, were crazy. They were light years ahead of us now. We've regressed.
2: Frank Lloyd Wright designed your cake box. That's how insane it was, guys. The, the 20s, 30s, and 40s were magical times, not because of societal reasons, but before, because of cake boxes and houses.
0: Make America cantilever again. <laughs>
2: 2024, and then you just drop your mic, and then you just... <laughs> <laughs> you're done with every other film political campaign you'll ever have to do in your life. I'm going to go be a mailman now. Yeah, that's right. You tour that countryside Sterling and you show them. That's <laughs> my dream job. The kind of cake, the kind of cake boxes they can possess in this life. Um, but yeah, he does that. And actually the gardener, uh, the guy who's watering his garden actually like, he says, I'm like, hold, hold the, hold the hose. The and, water
0: is coming out of currently.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, as he's holding it, it's almost as if the farmer expects him to do this because he knows he's going to tell a story. Because as Tati starts telling this story as Francois, he is literally covering the garden in water in the places that the farmer would want it to be gardened. Right, and the farmer has gone inside. Yeah, exactly, and he's watching him do it. So it's it's it establishes that this is the way this village has been treating Francois for years, it's yeah. seemingly. So it's like a, this small little detail of the way the way the action plays out
0: they wind him up they hand him a tool
2: and then they just let him do their and chores they observe. for him. Yeah, yeah exactly. yeah he's
0: like he's you know he's mark twaining painting a fence yeah exactly um that that's actually reno you tricked me <laughs> no that's really great insight into the film um that you caught because that really is his relationship with the village
2: yeah and he's but he and he doesn't really but, but the, throughout the entire he's film he's kind he, of a tool yeah, but he, literally and figuratively, and he—that was a good line. That is a very good line. It's almost like I would almost want the subtitle of this episode to be "He's a tool," <laughs> and then and have a and have a a little disclaimer going like. Jacques Tati is not a tool we are not insinuating this in the in the episode Francois
0: the Francois is the the village tool
2: yeah the village tool oh my god the village tool tool. now that's a movie that either M. Night Shyamalan needs to make or the Coen brothers need to make and I think I already answered who should make it by giving those two options but the uh, as the festival kicks off
0: let's just oh, for one moment, sit with the uh, the man with the hose. Yeah, sure. Just because uh, I think that's like a genuinely kind of innovative gag for this movie. Uh, you know the gag I'm I'm talking about. Yeah. So he's he's Francois is gesticulating with his hose and he's spraying water everywhere. And the movie plays a little bit with like sort of a suspense element because other people are coming up and he's talking to them. We keep expecting someone to get sprayed with the hose or him to spray himself with the hose. Like, you're just sitting there. He's got this loaded gun. Yeah. And he's waving it around, and you're waiting for the payoff. And then they leave uh to go back to the village. Mm-hmm. Um So he's just talking to himself in the front yard while he's spraying the water around. And again, we're waiting for the the hose and the water to pay off. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he steps through a board and just falls out of frame down a well. That's right, yeah. And then the f- And then what you have is now essentially a fountain there's just a hole in the yard (laughs) with water spraying out of it and the farmer calmly comes out and turns the hose off and the water uh subsides and francois just sitting in this hole off screen um but it's it's such a crazy gag because and
2: it's one that's constructed in such a way that's so deliberate It's not a cheat. Like that hole
0: is there the whole time. Yeah. But you're never paying attention to it.
2: No, because your eye is not being drawn to it. You're being distract it's um it's like a good magician. Your your eye is being misdirected.
0: Yeah, Um, it's a beautiful exercise in comedic misdirection.
2: Yeah, and on top of that it actually sets the tone for how he is good with direction, whether it be blocking or performance, because he is aware of where the viewer is going to take place, but also like because it's in a wide for the most part, that thing's coming out of theatrical direction first, mm-hmm. and then it's extending into the cinematic realm, which I mean is <clears throat> is something that I understand in theory. Now, if I know how to practice it on set, then you'll know that I've actually done something with my life, and the answer is I haven't. But <clears throat> I understand the, the theory behind it, and I I, I agree with you. That is a very good misdirect, and one that Gives you a payoff that you're not expecting and it's already showing that he's subverting he's not holding true true to tradition he is looking for his voice while using Keaton Chaplin Laurel and Hardy etc as your guide points which is frankly what all art does at the end of the day especially film film is riddled with it for for better or for worse and it actually comes into a point of watching the carnival take take place and i the reason i want to get to it is because there is this element of it of watching a french carnival versus watching an american carnival which <clears throat> at the time that this movie comes out it's within a year or so of nightmare alley coming out but also you've had other carnival theme fair uh the the, the elements of watching a carnival unfold in this kind of pa- not not even just pastoral fashion, but also like this this uh, this bygone element of Americana that went beyond pastoral and did exist in the fifties Americana and uh, even into into sixties Americana. It's an image that is possessed, and there's this lovely shot that Tati does. Of two different perspectives he does it of the kids and the, and the various different groups of kids going into the village for the for the festivities and we have our old lady with the goat coming around going like oh those girls got all their shoes on and they're ready to go skipping around with yeah, the, the teenage line girls. yeah the emmer line I think mm-hmm. is what her line is and, like, and you know like and thankfully it's not her going like these kids today with their bobby socks like that thankfully that never really comes up no but
0: she's talking about their um they're wearing like Two-inch heels.
2: Yes, their heels, yes. They're
0: all showing off their heels, mm-hmm. and then that'll pay off at the end. The way this movie sort of unwinds by undoing itself in like a very ordered fashion. Yeah,
2: and again, some of this is coming in the aftermath of filming it because he's discovering things in the editing room. Mm-hmm. And again, it's why that Tati's film school is, is pretty damn perfect in that respect. And the element of... We get this PO, POV of the boy who gets... Um, it gets uh, close run-ins with Roger amongst other people. But then we have Francois coming back and we do this twice with him using literally the same setup of him entering the village, both for here and then also for the following day. And I love the juxtaposition of how that's presented, but the image, and it's this lovely image on its own. And we were talking about composition and how it's not particularly mind-blowing. I find uh, beauty in subtler things at times. And one of them is this uh, over-the-shoulder shot of Francois looking at the fair. And it's... and it lingers. And I wasn't tuning in right away to why he's lingering there. I was almost like, why are you doing that? You don't need to stand on that for that long. But it is almost just like Francois maintaining the same exhilaration and joy as a child would. And he's not immune from that feeling just because he's our comedic character and he's hapless but cares about his job. Doesn't mean he's immune from that childlike wonder. And that's another human touch that he's adding.
0: And it's another through line that we'll see throughout his career as like we continue to watch into the Hilo films. Yeah. Um, a big part of the character he creates with Hulo is uh, someone who just has like a, a kid, a kid's heart. Mm hmm.
2: And it's nice to see from the early onset before I start going into that, because I like knowing that that's that's a consistency that will uh, give me satisfaction as a viewer. And uh, from a plot perspective, I guess, like the 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 the, the, one of the things one thing with Roger is that he's continuing to flirt with Jeanette to the point where he's stopping a wheel. It's a great gag. That's another
0: good line when the the wife notices (laughs) that he's stopping the wheel every time she bets so that she wins just to keep her around and then eventually the wife sees this and says, You're gonna wear out the soles of your shoes.
2: Yep, exactly. Small uh, little line. It's not necessarily a clever line, it's just a good line. And like
0: the shit eating grin on his face when when his partner catches on to what he's doing. Um like I really think there's a fun lovingness to this uh this affair that's being set up. Yeah. A dynamic there where, you know, like he shamelessly has to flirt with this woman because it's in his nature. And then she has to reel him in. She has to just kind of like uh, scold him for it. And, and that might be their relationship. But uh, yeah. like we don't hate the wife. That's another thing. She's not like a foil.
2: No. Because
0: like Roger sucks too.
2: Yeah. But I would make an argument that the wife is given barely anything to
0: do. If you watch it closely, she has a lot of really funny gags mm. in the way that she stops him okay um yeah they're like there's a moment where he's spitting on his hands to dig and then he locks eyes with jeanette and he stops and kind of giving her a shrug and then in that moment the wife spits on his other hand <laughs> to like remind him what he's doing okay um and every time that she stops him like towards the middle of the film it's through a nice bit of business she probably has the least to do
2: Right. And that's maybe and I might be looking at it through the quotient system that we that exists through a modern lens. And maybe Mm -hmm. I need to uh, that 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 definitely requires a rewatch on my end to watch how she is doing those subtler moments. And
0: yeah, watch the jokes that he gives her.
2: Yeah. And it actually would be a good, interesting exercise to experiment watching this film and not strictly focusing on Francois and focusing on the details that he's adding to characters outside of francois there is a side gag and i think it happens earlier on where this there's, there's this man in the village who's getting a dress for one of his kids mm-hmm. and he's trying to figure out a way to get into his car without wrestling up the dress which we've all had that problem with a nice piece of clothing that we get from a dry cleaner or something like that before a big event we i just wanna... got
0: married man I told okay. you about it <laughs>
2: like like like, like you, you you literally have that feeling of it's like oh shit i don't want to fuck up the thing but i gotta get going i like, have
0: nowhere to set this yeah. and no way to not wrinkle this no you and know I'm in really, a hurry yeah
2: and and this car is not a stable solution here and that little hanger thing doesn't actually fucking work and it collapses on itself and god mm. damn it toyota now <laughs> now i'm just ranting on my old car but <laughs> there's uh but there is that element of like you you Struggling, and we're getting a pastoral version of that, so he's on a fucking cart and it's
0: it's like a christening dress or something, yes, yes,,
2: yeah. that's what that's the old lady describes it as, and <clears throat> as francois goes through first of all, he does that thing again with the with the bike going through, and uh, actually the the payoff on that part of the joke is that he goes through and it's actually not his bike this time, right, it's actually another person's bike, which I was like that's a good way to some
0: n- real dandy. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah, (laughs) because the cafe owner, we get this repetition where he, Francois, well, that leads into the one joke that I think doesn't work, like, as it's told, the room for improvement joke. We have this gag where um, people will be passing by the maypole, and then they'll hear wood creaking, and they'll think the maypole's about to fall over. And then through editing, we get a cutaway to a guy who's just, like, fixing a car. He's doing some business where he's warping wood. Yeah. And the sound effect is coming from the warping wood. But uh, it'll start with someone walking under the maypole, and then they'll hear the warping wood, and they'll think the maypole's going to fall, and they'll react to it. The second time he rides in the cafe, uh another man was riding a bike, um heard that we got the cutaway reveal to it's a man warping wood. yeah, um and it's really just in that editing like that's the least tight um the the most poorly executed gag in the whole movie. Is just like the reveal of what the wood is doing.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's almost it's like it's an ancillary setup that doesn't uh, that doesn't need expounding upon.
0: Yeah, and and also it like the way it's cut away, the language just isn't quite there to yeah. make that land because it leads to the bigger joke where he then yeah. Francois comes in. There's bike. There's a bike mix-up. Yeah, the other man's bike's thrown out, and that's all very funny.
2: Yeah, and and you know I, that kind of imperf- imperfection doesn't necessarily bother me. And maybe it's because of having watched so many films on a weekly basis for either show that I just tend to whenever I see an imperfection, sometimes like my brain meshes over it. But you're right. That doesn't particularly work from the way he's been setting up gags prior and what he'll do afterward, and especially what we get further in when he actually goes into the bar.
0: Yeah.
2: And that where we get elements of the the clips that I did see of the postman school. And also the fact that the townspeople, amongst other things, are getting him drunk, which which was like, I I mean, like, you know, my my own personal history aside and whatnot, it was just kind of like mean to watch. But I get him very drunk. Yeah. And it was and it was one of those moments where I started, like, crying internally for Francois. Like, I was just like, that's something that was. Specific to my own emotional experience where I was just like, oh, that's just like that. That just hurts to watch.
0: I wonder if that's an intended beat or just like a delightful, uh, you know, way that we bring our own life to art.
2: I think it's both. I think he is. I th- But also, I, I always look at this from the perspective of comedians of this era, no matter what country they're coming from. Not all of them are emotionally tapping into a human condition intentionally. I've, a lot of that comes on accident or by by nature of how the gag is designed and how the joke is delivered. the uh, The implication has always been like with the Marx Brothers that like Duck Soup was uh, Groucho would said like we we weren't trying to make a political commentary. We were four Jews trying to make a laugh, trying to get a laugh, and that's like you know it's a it's a side off, but they did know what was going on in there. Consequently, though, in other com- comedies of the era you have Bud and Lou not intending to be wordsmith veterans. It's just what they knew from burlesque. It's almost like they, they learned art on accident and like people like Robert Bader point to comedians and, and of this era and stuff. And he points to the Marx Brothers specifically because that's his area of expertise is that you wouldn't describe them as commedia dell'arte arte, where they're trying to, uh, to be transgressive and like break those boundaries. And I, I get the sense that Tati is learning here, but as he's learning, he's showing who he is as a person, and that itself is bleeding into the film. So, in a sense, he is doing it, but unintentionally, but it's something that clearly, given how you've described where his films go forward, that he now knows that's a tool in his back pocket or in his tool chest of wonder. Because. That element to me feels the most human because we start getting the most insight into Francois as a character with his ego Mm -hmm. because we get my favorite, one of my favorite things in the movie from a commentary standpoint, which has to do with this fake documentary film.
0: Yeah, it's in the
2: tent. The projector is playing a newsreel.
0: Let's let's talk about this newsreel for a second because this Another mailman rescues him, he's being uh, mercilessly forced to drink. Uh, oh yeah. In this series of uh they're doing this thing where they're challenging him to a shoot off. And then they keep kind of rigging the game. So no one else is taking shots. And, and he's f- taken like four shots. And
2: they're switching up what he's drinking with Chardonnay. They're
0: switching like a light wine with, uh, or, with uh, uh, a con- cognac.
2: Cognac, yeah, that's right, yeah. So
0: yeah, he's going from zero to 60 real fast. Mm-hmm. He's everyone's friend. He's it's There's a very like Flowers for Algernon kind of vibe to that. Yeah. Where, like he doesn't know that he's the butt of this joke. He thinks people are being friendly. Um. There's a cleverness with how it's done. It is a bit mean spirited, everyone picking on him.
2: Right. And again, I do think it is how you yeah. how what what do you personally bring to the experience will engage your reaction to that moment.
0: Yeah, if you're a frat boy, this is the funniest thing you've ever seen. Like they're making the they're making the frost drink exactly. and it's hilarious. He gets pretty sauced and then uh one of his fellow postmen run in and, is it, like,
2: and this is the one that has the motorbike, right? Um The baguette delivery boy? Yeah, later on. Because he, I think so. Regardless, though, yes, he pulls him in, and you goes, won't believe what they're showing in the tent. The, the, naked lady, no. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're they're showing uh they're showing this they're showing a they're showing a documentary on American Postman, and we get this assemblage of stock footage, from clearly the war. It's so funny. And aviation training. And 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 I want to give everybody the fake history of America as it extends according to the world of Jacques Tati, and it is very very simple. The postal service and this country had had grown in a post-war world to the point where apparently, and I did not know this, and Sterling, I'm pretty sure you didn't know this either in your American history classes. Uh, it wasn't taught to me
0: in class, but I learned it on the
2: streets. Yeah, so look, didn't you 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 had to learn as we all did in our time hustling <laughs> that that. Postmen actually rappel from the air to deliver our mail. They don't use a mail truck. It's
0: the most efficient way.
2: <laughs> yeah, and oh, in a telegram, you better believe that you're dangling off the back of a plane because that's the speedier. It, it rappelling takes a little bit more time and effort, but. Hanging off the back of a plane with your bare hand as if though you are Johnny Knoxville is the best way to receive a telegram.
0: Basically, every mailman in America post-war is uh, Tom Cruise in like MI6, just hopping onto planes, doing the craziest stunts. Uh, or am I too? Because they're like riding motorcycles through fire as training. Yeah, exactly.
2: It's absurd. The, the, and the shot of the telegrams that I alluded to—it literally reminded me of imagery from Jackass 3D. Like just literally, like watching like the the these craziest stunt. Like you could lay under Corona on that <laughs> on that tr- on that footage, and it would work just as effectively. I mean, it's it's such a silly documentary assemblage that he puts together
0: it's great and i mean it kind of speaks to just like american propaganda and like mm. different levels of propaganda coming out and and those um those films that you get around that period right um it, which i like you
2: won't believe how this is done these this element of the pride in the american post-war boom and Tati is, It starts
0: with the phrase "No one writes more letters than Americans."
2: Yeah, that that, and also like 130 million letters are read a day, or like right. are read a day. The uh, the the numbers here are uh, preposterous, and my 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 first impression watching this Sterling was the idea of like, is Tati automatically drawing into social commentary, or is this coming off of just a desire to be silly for the purposes of this joke about a simple French postman uh, caught up in a, uh, caught up in a mechanical world?
0: There's a, uh, there's a really good um, study or like a, a journal entry written by uh, Lucy Fisher on de Fet, um called Americans in Paris mm-hmm that uh just kind of highlights uh i I won't go through it right now but like it it, it's long and i don't have any quotes pulled um but it's worth reading if like you're somehow still interested yeah at this point but like uh she's kind of speaking to the um the way that europe like war-torn europe has an inferiority to america at that point and the way that america is seen as like Really, kind of being like the apex of modernism, yeah. Which and the insecurities that people feel towards like um, themselves, like regarding Americans.
2: And there's a defensiveness in the dialogue that he presents, which is you know like, America has offered the instructions and training for these daredevil uh, services, uh, and to the to the French, nothing is impossible. Which is like which is uplifting right. in a certain regard given what France had been through and what de Gaulle, aka our our boy, was doing, was doing to uh keep France free in that era. And I, I gotta tell you, like it was like actually kind of like interesting to watch that perspective outside of our lens and purview of what the post America war boom looks like. Mm-hmm. And also what our perception of ideological change looks like by comparison, because it it doesn't it doesn't tap into societal issues. But to me, it does provide an insight into our uh, ego as a country. And and in the process of, I think, tapping into his own country's insecurity, he takes a little poke at our uh, at our bombastic patriotism
0: and you see that uh, reflected cinematically that's one of like the better um, the better shots in the film just in terms of composition and like the way that it uh, 2d there's 3d that, sp-
2: there's that over the shot sh- uh over the shoulder shot of him watching it
0: yes you get the two people they're on the sides of the frame and mm-hmm. they're looking through um, and and it's a frame within a frame within a frame basically <sighs> like their faces frame the tent which then has the screen inside it on which these images are being projected. Um,
2: and he, and when he does that, he, he actually stops halfway through and goes back and <laughs> gets further, for, further drinking in and goes through his shit and he gets pulled back in for the remainder of this. And he's, he's trying already, to fix a flat tire at the yeah, time. The or, juxtaposition yeah, right. is that's he's trying thing, yeah. to
0: fix a flat tire that he has. While he's watching Americans ride motorcycles through fire, and, and
2: you hear the uh, uh uh the dialogue in there, yeah, yeah, overlaid in the process. Well,
0: another moment where he's overlaying uh one one physical reality with um another sonic space, mm-hmm. like we saw with the lovers.
2: Yeah, which which is lovely because he's using. It's almost like he's homaging cinema in the process, but he, again, he I don't think he's realizing it right away.
0: I think there's a love letter to that a bit in that like. Yeah. If you ever, like, if you grew up and experienced a, a tent, like a tent pole an actual tentpole kind of a thing.
2: Yeah, which I I never really have, to be honest, but that's part of the reason why the show opens up the way it does is to present that kind of atmosphere.
0: Absolutely. You're always kind of alluding to that. Yeah. Cause it, for it, me,
2: it was the Tower Theater. It's almost because, it, well, cause the, because the uh, full disclosure for Inside Baseball on this show, it's always the kind of feeling of just like, these aren't the films that are going to be shown at a regular multiplex or even an Alamo draft house. Even a
0: retrospective, yeah.
2: Exactly. And like, I mean, well, until I found out that To Each His Own apparently was on the Criterion channel, but it just, needs to be put on an actual Blu-ray disc because it's actually important. But anyway, I digress. Uh, the, this this film is acting as a love letter to a form of cinema, but you are right. The tent serving as the cinema alone throws back all the way to the Lumiere brothers yeah. showing a train arriving at the station at a carnival.
0: I mean, Tati fell in love with Chaplin and Keaton and everyone somewhere, and you can imagine it might have been an exhibit.
2: Yeah. And, and, and that, and that in a sense is that him, it, he is again, tapping into that childlike wonder of what the magic of movies possesses itself.
0: And in this case, it, uh, it sort of breaks
2: like Francois's heart. Yeah. It breaks Francois heart. It changes the whole tone of the movie after that. It does. But before we leave the tent, we do have to talk about one of the, uh, one oh of God. America's greatest traditions. It's, it's, I don't think anybody has ever really understood how important this is to our legacy as Americans, and I will and I will say this phrase bit for bit. Every year in Oklahoma, a contest is held to choose the sexiest Apollo in the U.S. Post, and then they show uh, uh, stock footage of beefcakes. Beefcakes, like I'm talking, like uh, Pumping Iron Arnold Schwarzenegger clones. Jack Lelane. Jack Lane, yes. And the, the final phrase in this video is, Ladies, would you like the postman to ring your bell in a getup like this? Now you remember very well last year, Sterling, when we had to cancel the annual Oklahoma contest for sexiest postman of the year. That was. They
0: tried to move it online, and it was just it, it didn't quite carry over. It didn't work. It didn't, it work. Translate. It didn't... A viscerality to it. Yeah, uh, but the Apollo, the American Post Office Apollo competition of Oklahoma, unfortunately, will not be resurrected until
2: 2023. 2023, when we're absolutely sure it's safe to show beefcakes of that nature on a stage together within close proximity that joke is like Borgesian like (laughs) that is insane it's 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 one of those last it's a it's cherry on top I always refer to the good cherry on top on a lot of respects with these things and this is a gag where the cherry on top is clearly the 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 idea of Tati is because he's learning this again in the post room, yeah. he is literally being able to go like well, like what else can I do with this I know how about a joke about sexiest postman of the year in he's, Oklahoma Yeah in Oklahoma and like and that's the thing like it it, it is one of those things where I don't think it's specific or pre-designed by him because that does sound like a phrase that you literally pick out of the phone book of like I don't know the the Apollo contest in Oklahoma like it's a it's a mad lib for him in a certain respect but it's a beautiful mad lib Yeah it it's it's great it sounds good in French Yep it does but it dissuades Francois from feeling good
0: about his station in life I think he's already like maybe even walked away and we see that
2: through the eyes of the other postman perhaps i'm misremembering oh that. no yeah we i think we do actually you're right we don't see francois look at that so he that doesn't that joke is
0: just for us francois is so bummed out and then people pour out of this tent and they're like immediately find francois who happens to be there trying to fix his tire oh yeah that's right and they're and and they're they talking sh- on
2: they're talking smack talk to this to this guy you wouldn't make you wouldn't last one day in this in the uh, you you're not going to be flying anytime soon in that thing yeah. that's yeah. one of the ones that stuck out to me of just like comparing through your phraseology the 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 uh, the, uh, the, the, the the mechanical prowess of a bike versus the mechanical prowess of a f- f- fucking repelling helicopter like it, it's one of those like beautiful uh, beautiful touches that he brings to g- to get us further into francois' camp and what's more, the humiliation has doubled down when again Roger and Marcel are giving him sh- are giving him shit.
0: He comes back to the bar. He's pretty yeah, dejected.
2: Yeah. And this is where we get an image that is very indelible for Francois, which is the uh, this is a joke uh, from like a, from, that you would get at a gag shop when those existed. He's like a little rascal's gig. Yeah, exactly. Where he he has him look inside this. What's supposed to be? You can see the ocean in here. You can hear it in here and he takes it out of his eye and he's got a round black um, circle on his Yeah, eye. they
0: hit him with the good old the good old uh shell with an ink ink on the end and they ink ring his eyes so he's kinda like wearing a monocle at that point. Yeah,
2: and it's and it's uh, the image you see on the Criterion poster for this, amongst other things. And Yeah, and it sort of has like a
0: surrogate of like a black eye.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know? Yeah, he's his pride's been smacked around a little bit in the face, and that's the, the personification of it. And we get the most I, I, I would say it's like honestly one of the funniest sad things in the movie is Francois just chugging along the countryside with his bike, drunk as shit. Um, that is uh
0: that's like one of the only times in the movie that he's alone yeah. with a spotlight. Yeah, uh, Tati, and like that is where like his physical comedy, and just physical um, presence, is is on full display, and it's it's kind of like a brilliant uh, close up told through a wide shot.
2: No matter how often you think you've seen the ultimate drunk acting in movies like The Hangover or um, or, or any college movie made within the last twenty to thirty years, nothing will compare to Jacques Tati. In many respects. I mean, obviously, some people have found a way to improve upon this over time in, from a modern audience-pleasing perspective.
0: Time and place, it's
2: perfect. Yes. This this here is particularly wonderful, is Jacques Tati trying to ride his bike through a bush and saying the phrase, let's see the Americans try to get through this. It's so crushing. And And so funny at the same time. Yes, exactly. That's the thing. You see the physicality of him actually trying to get through this bush. And you're like, as an audience member, I'm sitting in the chair that Sterling can see that's in front of my TV going like, I hope he makes it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You're like groaning. His, his wheel gets offset at one point. So when he's trying to ride, he's like riding in a circle and then his handlebars flip over. He's just struggling with his tool. And yeah, he's sort of like swinging at demons. Yeah, and then he's riding through this bush, and they're not and demons. That,
2: and they're not demons that he's created. This is him literally just dealing with the the, the march of progress, smacking him in the face a lot, combined with his
1: already
2: uh, already established reputation as the hapless, you know, punching bag. Mm-hmm. And the next day unfolds, and well, um, oh, go oh, oh, yeah. I, I just think. wanted
0: to stay with that real quick because that's another um, oral technique there where. Uh, Tati, just before he sets up this sequence, he has uh, like the bugle player stumble out of the bar. <gasps> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Drunk, and he's playing the bugle, and it's just like off key, and he's playing it poorly, and he's playing a motif that we've been hearing, kind of a marching motif. Um, so like this whole scene is kind of underscored and set up by this lone bugler playing uh, over shots of the town and over <laughs> shots of Tati um, this, it's almost like a blues aesthetic. Cause like the notes are falling flat. Um, okay. And, and he's, it's something we've already introduced in terms of a rhythm. Yeah. And yeah, we're just getting these like offbeat. Yeah. Sad notes coming out of a bugle.
2: And we are getting like the, that we are getting like the doldrums into the night on this evening where everybody's already been drinking of a storm and already, it's not even just Francois. It's the entire village. Our, perspective is at this moment from from Francois because of what we've just been unveiled yeah and then he
0: leaves Francois he ends up fading out to set up the next day with Francois uh going on one more weird little adventure and sleeping in a train but he leaves Francois at his lowest point to go back to the village and just kind of show it's not the hangover yet, but it's the after party where people are trying to get home.
2: And and the old lady with the goat establishes that the no matter how par- raucous the party was, the person who always wakes up first in the middle of the in the morning is still the first one up, regardless mm-hmm. of how raucous the night was before. And going is... to bed, we get these
0: like really intimate uh, shots where the um, <gasps> the girls are walking each other home, and they and the one girl so. She drops her off. The girl goes inside, like says goodnight, goes inside. And then for whatever reason, she turns around and looks back out the door. And we get a shot that's over the shoulder of the girl in silhouette watching her friend leave. These girls are tortured by their high heels. And, like, this is where that starts to pay off. Yeah. Then the girl, thinking no one's watching, like... Takes off goes her Goes ahead heels. and takes off her heels. And
2: walks home barefoot.
0: Walks home barefoot. And uh, that moment is so human to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, that moment to me might be how you felt with the watching them bully him drinking. Like that moment just kind of drives a little stake in my heart.
2: I can see that in certain regard. I don't know if I could, I don't know how my emotional aesthetic draws to it apart from seeing that like there's this veneer of what beauty is presented to be and what it should be versus what the reality is. And having them let their guard or like let let the charade drop. And there's like this sense of like, I don't think this is intentional as a commentary, but this is something that you pick up on in the aftermath. And again, this could be me speaking 10 times the amount of wind up somebody's ass. But the idea of the, the standardization of Hollywood beauty or what the standard is of glamour being deconstructed in one simple action which i don't see a lot of movies of this era show them taking off the heels because more or less the shot of the feet is irrelevant in certain respects or it's a
0: sexualized act of undressing
2: exactly this one is literally just oh my feet are killing me that's all it is. And no
0: one's watching me and I can take these off. Yeah. It's a really simple act and I think uh when we go to Tati's origins as a mime it starts with his um his superpower really is observation. Yeah. Uh he's he's a sporting guy who plays sports and then he clearly just observes like when he's on the bench maybe or when a, you you get the sense that he's the guy in the room. When he's not the center of attention, he's just like watching everyone, and um, almost keeping like a mental diary, because uh, that's such a that moment would only come from someone who's perceptive. Yeah. In life.
2: And and I th- and I agree that like, I think that Tati is aware of things he has to include to, ha- to stand out in a world that is still entranced by Hollywood cinema, where that is still a main export or an import that they received from the, uh, in the country because of the decimation of war. Noir expands because of France and is appreciated as an art form because of France because that's the outpro- output product they were receiving when their country was not able to produce films on the scale of Hollywood.
0: And that's why all the directors that come out of him are so drawn to sort of noir aesthetics and elements.
2: Yeah, and he, I think he's aware... At the very least, whether he's aware of this from the grand scheme of being commercial or not, it's more just like this is these are things I can do to add to my own perspective on it. And hopefully it sticks the way it should stick. And again, like I I don't I never try to think that these guys initially in their first outing work beyond their means of understanding. It's an innate decision. It's not specifically contrived, but he is aware that this stands out; otherwise, he wouldn't have had him do it. He could have run by a rule book if he wanted to do that. No, and it's such an
0: it's such an unnecessary detail.
2: But it does do something, so it's it, he he keeps it because it's intentional. He asks that actress to do that. That's the that's the beauty of it. He gets an innate response to it, and what's more, he doesn't need to it's almost like I I kind of like ran around in circles with my statement and more in the context of like, just the idea that he does not have to worry about the perception of what this is going to be entailed as either a sexual act or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. It's, it's of no consequence to him. And that's kind of a a wonderful thing to have at your disposal at this time in film.
0: Yeah. What's great is you get to see through the expansion because all the gags from the short film are about to show up in this next day after he gets Pep in his step again.
2: Which we're going to basically be going through our top gags at yeah. that point.
0: Yeah, they're great. But uh, what you get to see in the feature, uh, that's the beauty of, of sometimes getting to watch a short and then a feature. Yeah. Is when he gets the time and the budget to, to do something, uh, where he decides to take comedy or just take his filmmaking is often these little moments. And I, these chaotic scenes,
2: and I find it interesting that that's what he's drawn to because he doesn't ha- because he it, when given an expansion instead of going broader, he draws inward, mm-hmm. which is an indication of somebody who cares versus somebody who's out to uh, my 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 friend Henry always points out to this is that and he's been on the show before and he's kind of talked to me about this before. I'm just like, the difference between presentation and subtlety and how we, we used it to try to describe our own different personalities. And like, and my, my appreciation for subtlety is not surpassed for my admiration for the bombastic at times. And I, I look at something like Tati and uh, marvel at the balance. Because that's not something that's easily achieved, especially in 1949 in post-war France. You, d- you wouldn't think it living in this country that that exists um, and that and small moments like this lead to something like the climax, which is as big and bombastic as it is from a stunt level perspective and a comedic gag level perspective uh, makes it all the more richer.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah well his instinct to bring the energy down and mm-hmm. like create these quiet moments uh francois ends up falling asleep in a train car after <laughs> trying to lo- deliver
2: mail to a hen house and i love that reveal of him coming out of the car yeah it's almost like a short of hi- uh, short of the camera not cutting and having it be all one big tracking shot it's like a perfect shot for me And the only reason I want it to be a continuous shot is because I am aware of how presentation from blocking and timing would work with that. Mm -hmm. But I still like the way it's cut because it's timed perfectly for him to roll out of that sucker. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty damn wonderful.
0: Yeah. He's uh, pretty hungover. He comes out. uh, He's being hounded by the the railman. Mm -hmm. And he just says, anyone can make a mistake. He gets his bike. Uh, he gets his bike and he uh, hops on it, and then he says to himself, kind of like, you know, we'll we'll see when you wake up. You're gonna sleep in that thing eventually. Yeah. yeah, we'll see how you feel. Takes off. He goes back to the town, which the woman has walked through at this point, and kind of again, you said she observes like the first one up is still up, <laughs> whether or not it was a raucous night.
2: Um, I'm 24-hour news coverage for this entire village. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. The, that woman something else
2: this is old NN <laughs> nana news network <laughs> nana news network <laughs> but yes you're right she is like she's still observing even to the next day and we get that as i as i said earlier the, the 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 gentleman who gets up first thing in the morning and whatnot and this is where we get i feel like it's i i first thought that this wasn't a redemptive moment for roger and marcel but you've i think you've convinced me otherwise is that yeah, he
0: rolls up on them they're starting to disassemble everything but the merry ground is still in the center of the town mm-hmm. um inexplicably there's a stationary bike on it now amidst uh all the horses and ladders <laughs> and like weird objects
2: now that i would not uh, now Careful, Sterling. I don't want I, I don't want movie logic to uh, interfere with you too much because I don't want to have a Reddit thread started. <laughs> Fair enough. I just don't
0: remember seeing the bike. Oh no, no, no yeah,
2: no. I, I mean, if I had to take a guess, I'd say it was established elsewhere. But it's almost like one of those things where I'm just like, oh, I'm just. They just happen to have it in their carny van. You know? Yeah,
0: I I didn't care because it's not a detail to care about. Yeah,
2: it's just it's it's like the clowns in a car. <laughs>
0: yeah, and he so he rolls in on him and they start like right back into tearing in on him cuz i think they're just sort of like they're those dudes that <laughs> that in in some way like there's a jocularness to it not to like over defend that type of masculinity but they see him and like immediately they have to like bust his balls and give him a hard time
2: it's, yeah but it, but but they but as you've alluded to and i don't like i, I mean like y- you know you take it as you will in a comfort level but it doesn't it never f- goes to the point of uh, like truly vile behavior. Yeah,
0: he's not the water boy. No, 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 you no, know. no, no. But uh, they start to st- they start back in on him, and then um, uh, Rogers just like, "Hey, man, he looks pretty bummed out. Like, w- we should kind of take it easy on him." Yeah. And uh, Marcel falls in, and <laughs> and then they kind of ask him what the trouble is, and immediately he's just like, "Fucking Americans! It's America. This. It's America. That." All anyone wants to talk about is how I'm not an American uh, paratrooper mailman. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how to feel about myself right now.
2: Yeah. And and they give him this lovely gift that now I'm seeing it is a gift, is that he basically gives them the intent of, well, I'm going to show you how to be as efficient as an American postman. And both of them actually give them this because they start giving <laughs> – they tell them, like, "Well, yeah, American postmen, like, do backflips out of planes
0: uh, while shooting, like, two guns and doves are flying. Yeah. But they're really – you ever seen an American ride a bike? It's embarrassing. Like, they're bad at bikes. And I bet we could teach you to be the ultimate bike riding
2: mailman. Yeah, you know, like, I mean, and uh, let's see, full, let's say full disclosure, guys, we still haven't learned how to ride bikes in this country. And clearly, we uh, a friend uh, from Holland taught me how to ride a bike. Really, I, I mean, I, t- I taught myself after crashing a tricycle uh, once as a kid, and then I crashed a two wheeler b- bike because I didn't know how to operate the brakes, and slammed into the middle of a garage door, uh, face first. Because <laughs> I'm that hilarious, apparently, from age six onward. Um, His suspenders fell off as well. <laughs> Got caught on a laundry pole. I was lifted. You have no idea the Tati level adventures that I had at the age of six, guys. It's it's stupid, Um, but no. In all sincerity, though, like you know, uh, what we get here in this finale is established by this idea of showing him fanciful tricks, which I found amusing. But then we get him, they get this, he, he gives them this encouraging, he, he gives, they give him this encouraging rally cry about, you know, go out there and do it. They basically, it, I mean, when I read the description of this, that like he's he's challenged to uh, show up Americans uh, in his postal delivery abilities. It's not really a challenge. It's more just like an encouragement, not allowed, go and do it. So it's not really a traditional challenge that a movie presents from a plot perspective. Mm-hmm. it's a motivation to do your day's work with all these new tricks we taught you, but it is not a competition.
0: Yeah, they build him back up. They Honestly, they just give him a little like confidence and pride in himself again. And Tati, having like brought us way down into the blue notes of that bugle and the bike thing, uh, just from a filmmaking perspective, then gives us a great uh, set piece during this where he's riding a stationary bike on a merry-go-round that they turn on to simulate speed. Um, and then they're having him do all these tricks. And then as he's like trying to talk to them, the merry go rounds still spinning and they are stationary. So he's having to run around the merry-go-round, mm-hmm. which is uh full of weird things. Cause they're tearing it down. So he's like running up and down ladders and dodging horses, um, and that's, that's just like one of my favorite little yeah. little gags as well. That lifts your spirits as a viewer back up.
2: Yeah. Um, it didn't at first for me because I was still trying to suss out Ro- Roger and Marcel. But now as I, but when I went through it again prior to you coming in and, and then going back and dissecting certain moments, I do see the uplift there that you see. And it's literally him winding the movie back up. Yeah, not too dissimilarly from the way he winds up that piano to get the music playing in the bars. There, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good and,
0: connection there.
2: And, yeah, and I mean, uh, and it's also that's just an excuse to bring up that wind-up pianos were a thing, guys. Yeah, but. and he goes, "What do you want to hear, waltz or polka?" Just, that's just. Uh, I got two songs: waltz and polka. That's one of my favorite gags in The Invisible Man. Is that they that that they have that moment where they they he's clearly not playing the piano and whatnot, and it's just it's a funny little. It's a funny little touch that James Whale puts in that movie, um, but we get this uh, this tour uh, tour de tati
0: tour de tati, if you will. We essentially get like um, him rebooting the short film for this third act.
2: Yeah, and so let's talk about this first from a broad perspective, really quickly, in the grand scheme of this. Like he takes twenty minutes to give us this finale. It's the most glorious twenty minutes of a finale that in, in a modern perspective would be relegated to about ten, five to 10, maybe 15 minutes. Like maybe is the, is the big one on the 15. And he, as you said, he winds the film back up in that carousel. Mm -hmm. This is him letting it loose for the last 20 minutes. We basically get 20 minutes of satisfaction after absolutely being brought down to the pits. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that, there are even little side journeys within it nothing like of a major import. They're just smaller touches because as he's going through his job, he has to deliver these different letters. And he keeps
0: saying American style, American style. Yeah. And, and,
2: every- and even the guy who gives him the introduction to the documentary, who's driving on his little motorbike and whatever, Yeah, the
0: baguette delivery man with a motorbike.
2: Yeah. And he's just like, you know, yeah, you, you, you stay behind me. Americans don't s- sleep and whatnot. Or like the Americans don't stop for a drink. And, he, yeah. and that's when we had actually that wonderful gag of the bike on the chain, and he forgets that the bike's on the chain, and then he tries to drive it. When he, Which is in the short. Yeah, and I will tell you right now, in either case, because I saw the clip of it from the short in there, in that, when he does that stunt, my my whole body clenched up because I know what that's like to fall off a bike like that. With the chain? Yeah, yeah. With, like with that with that or like something that's it's caught on and then suddenly you're that's such jerking stop it, it's it's just like when i saw him fall that's when I was just like ah oh my ah i i i'm i i'm feeling the the cringe of being on the on the ground right yeah, now yeah he
0: tumbles for his art like he kind of really gets to show off um some some good stunts, yeah, in and a sequence.
2: And I do wonder, like, what the hospital bills were for Tati and in, in his career, because I have to imagine there was an injury or two. Evidently,
0: he's like a nine foot tall man made out of Jello. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to really take it all on the chin and keep going. I you're am, sure, a,
2: you know, clearly they did takes. I am a, what you call Mister Fantastique of the Fantastique Four. We? And the other gags that we get in this are. I will describe my... He rides through fire real quick. Yeah, that, yes. Which simulates
0: the motorcycles riding through fire in the newsreel. Yeah. And, like, you know, if, if it's 1949 and you're not standing up and cheering... Oh, yeah. Then I don't know where your heart is I, at that
2: point. I'd argue. It's a triumph. I'd argue, and thank you for reminding of it, because if you don't bring that... If you don't cheer at that in 2021, you have no sense of adventure. And I brought up Jackass earlier. Uh, the... The amount of, in terms of translating what we see in today's work, the amount of stunt work that Tati pulls off, we are still fascinated to this day if we are clamoring for the trailer for Jackass Forever. Right. We are still, and Tati and himself is tr- tr- grasping onto that from comedians of the past. Jackass, in effect, is comedians uh, of a certain regard where their specialty is stunts. I would argue that the lineage goes into there in a positive light because of the desire to watch practical human effect and not watching a computer operate. And I think that Tati's, I'll put it a away from my modern analogy, bringing it to maybe more of a like, to watching a stunt show, period, or like mm-hmm. watching, uh, I mean,. Death Proof or Baby Driver, where there were, there were practical car effects going on.
0: It's blocking versus
2: previs. Exactly. Exactly. It's the difference between, and I don't mean to bring this as Marvel versus cinema or whatever the heck debate's going on on fucking film Twitter right now. I could give two shits.
1: Sorry.
2: Yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter, guys. Have fun with what you want to have fun with. But there is a difference between a previs fight sequence and watching choreography ensue. And in fact, you actually watch the way a choreography can work and feel improvised in things like the recent Mortal Kombat movie, which utilized a Shaw Brothers kind of effect on the martial arts and combine that with what previs they had to do for the mar- Mortal Kombat
1: mm.
2: thingies that happened. in there. I am not Mortal Kombat literate people. I am sorry but like saying about the fatalities yeah the fatalities yes but before that when they're actually doing fight fight moves that are tangible on the human level and not in their world you do see a level of grace and ballet skill not too dissimilar from what tati has to do with these particular stunts or even in comedies where you have intense stunt sequences still happening actually uh, 21 jump street had some wonderful bike effects uh, in the opening chase sequence that they're doing before they oh, have to, right. yeah, before they have to get sent to Drum Street, they have the the bikes, the bike, the chase in the park where they forget the Miranda rights, and as I learned, that's apparently not how the Miranda rights work. But anyway, doesn't matter. Movie's Some funny. Some of my
0: best friends are named Miranda. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and the, I think that you have in Tati a spirit for what the human body can do. <laughs> and there's and, and that that actually actually ties into the thread of the carnival aspect of this because that's also another element of the carnival american french uh, german doesn't matter that has always been a primal attraction to the carnival and in a sense the big day doesn't stop because the festival is over the big day ends when the entire troupe leaves which is not till the end of the movie
0: I mean, some would say his big day is finding, you know, getting his groove back. Life is a cabaret, baby.
2: You know, you know what, you know what, the biggest upset of this movie is, is that Tati didn't have the awareness to be like, it should be called "How Francois Got His Groove Back." And then Tati, yeah, that was a producer note. Yeah, it was a producer note. Just keep it simple. And I, and Get I, his groove back. Tati, what is, what is he? What, I don't even have LPs yet. Look, look, I, Tati, know about the groove. I don't expect you, you Americans, let alone the rest of my fellow Frenchmen, to know what the groove is. But you know, seriously though, you're right. He is reclaiming his own positive nature about himself, and we get the scene that you had alluded to as like the perfect executed scene, and I think it's the highlight of this whole event and affair. Is him sketching off the back of a truck. Speak on it, dude. The first off, when he's sketching off of it, he's actually doing desk work, quite literally.
0: Yes, he goes back to the station, yeah. and everyone there is like human slugs, mm-hmm. and he's watching them work. And he goes like, "I can't, I can't even look at this right now." And then he storms out. That's it. Ale 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 American style. And then, as he's riding the bike, a speeding truck comes past, uh, and the tailgate is down. This big wooden tailgate is down on it. Yep. And he just kind of reaches out and grabs it. Mm-hmm. And then um, and this sort of fact I mean, when you think about the lineage of this um, in terms of like silent comedians, like this seems like kind of a chaplain gag, but it's like a beautiful set piece. I'll let you describe it from there.
2: Yeah, from there, he starts literally stamping letters that are and officiating the letters that are going to go out on his route. And you see this shot from behind of him sketching off the back doing this. And then it does this cut, a pretty seamless cut from the other uh, angle of him letting go of the back of that truck and gliding around a corner up into beyond what will eventually be the next cut. And I told... Sterling, this at the beginning, and if anybody listens, watches, watch my Twitter feed on the week that this has been recording, they saw this joke, but I'll fucking repeat it here because why not? If you can't, if you watch this movie and don't start singing, don't take money, don't take fame, don't need no credit card to ride this train as that cut is happening, then this show isn't for you guys because that, that, my immediate go-to point was back to the future marty mcfly damn it i'm late for school for tati it's damn it i'm late for my route yeah. <laughs> the and so like and i i really wish if i had i i, um, I might in the uh the post editing of this episode i might check to see if zemeckis and bob gale actually cite this as a possible influence that'd be worth a dig yeah because it's not just the gag itself because as we established this has been done before it's a spirit it's a vibe it's a it's a vibe but there's also a cutting precision that it feels like very similar to the way marty mcfly hitches himself off of the truck as he approaches hilldale high and but that being aside too we also get gags that involve him nearly getting uh, could, could potentially be getting run over by a train. Instead, his bike goes up on the lift of the crossing guard that happens for that, that, that goes down for a train. Um, both the truck gag and the crossing guard
0: gag are in the short film. Mm-hmm. Um, not to kill the pacing of, of you summarizing. Oh, this go right story. ahead. Yeah. But uh, they're done better. Like he's redone them in this. Uh, and I know we spoke about the one gag that I, think he actually just takes the footage from the short film and puts it in yeah and that's the bell tower gag yeah um but what, what we get to see the great thing uh, in this sequence is we get to see him taking jokes that he shot uh what is it, like three
2: four years ago uh 46 so yeah yeah he's roughly in a two to three year range by given the fact that this is released in 49
0: yeah and he gets to remake them uh having learned what he knew um having learned what he has in the um interim but he, like, really does improve these gags and the way they're cut and the way that they're shot.
2: Which you have that, again, when we talked about short films being the transition point into feature films? I still haven't seen it, but uh, Jim Cummings uh, Jim Cummings kind of got a lot of his start out of, like, a short out of Sundance that then expanded.
0: Uh, I got to see that at the Boulder International Film Festival. It's at
2: Thunder Road, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it,
0: it's a beautiful short, and then he does a beautiful feature okay. out of it.
2: Um, and, and I was going to use another example that might seem a little odd, but I think it's valid is saw saw started off as a short film, uh, that had the bear trap gag. Essentially. It doesn't have Amanda in it, but it has, um, I think it's Lee Wannell, uh, in, in, in the chair. And it, I'd argue it's perfected in the feature film because it, it allows more dynamic, dynamic precision in the visual and, it also provides a story element that is essential to a franchise that has now been rebooted, I would argue, successfully this year. Um, but, you know, that's a debate for another day. The bottom line is, is that it, it is a long lineage of using the testing ground as your pitch kit and then getting the money to then or or at least the ability or time to perfect it. Because the one thing I wonder is, like, even if the budget was not glorious, it sounds like he had more time, which I think is sometimes more valuable for I a mean, We all like know that time literally can be money on a film set. Oh, it's like the most valuable. I, I don't, if I could make the sun stay out longer, I would. If I could eliminate sounds across the gamut and not have to wait for a lot more to go away, I would. Yeah, shoot M.O.S. Exactly. Well, yeah, sure. That's the, <laughs> fix it in post, right? That's the, that's my favorite phrase. Fix it in Foley. <laughs> F I F fifth. I'm just gonna start yelling fifth. I
0: plead the fifth on this, and shot. I'm just
2: gonna start saying it like Bob De Niro on The Irishman, like I refused, I, I refuse to shoot this shot right now unless you go M O S on the grounds that it might tend to incriminate my art. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, he. I, I do think that you have an element of you do the you do the imperfect version, and some people might argue better or worse, whatever, depending on their preference and how you pre- they perceive your art. But he is given more time to perfect certain things like that. The Bell Tower gag, I feel like, if you're telling me that that's inserted from the short film, I'm almost just like, well, great out the first gate. Yeah, he nailed it on that one. Yeah, because that Bell Tower gag is is fucking nuts because that's like, that literally has somebody being lifted up, which is, he seems like too, it seems like so expensive given what they're filming on.
0: It's hard to say how they pull it off exactly, but it it does look like money and it feels like money uh, when you're watching it. Like that's a special effect. And we had that time.
2: We had I had a Twitter follower of mine tell me that I want to watch. His name is Sybil, and he belongs to our film club. Sy is really wonderful, and he said that you know I love Tati and I love that film, and I'm sure there's documentaries I could watch to figure out the things that they do in this movie. But I don't want to. I want to live in a world of ignorance. And I initially, That's nice sentiment. and I was initially going to dig super deep. And at a certain point, I was just like, I think it's, it's part of this movie is best explained through the magic first. And it's almost like I want to do a solo follow up where having having gone through the facts of these and just extrapolating them through through my own perspective. Um, Or even having you come back another day and just being like, let's talk about the actual physicalized production after sifting through every fucking commentary that's ever existed for jour de fete and breaking it down those bit by bit, not too dissimilarly for what we're going to do with Charles Lawton directs with Jack Hanley. Um, And I feel like ultimately you have a sense of uh, it doesn't matter that doesn't always get the benefit of the doubt in other films. Uh, I think your defeat has allowed you to suspend yourself beyond the ramifications of physicalized production. And he like literally is lifting people out of the frame. Yeah. Uh, in this shot. And um, that's the physical, that's the actualization of that sentiment is that when I'm seeing that, and I know for a fact that he's shooting on, on a clear budget with uh, minimal access. Yeah. With a- limited access to studio for the short film. And then he's lifting that and then putting it in the feature film. He already gets it right the first time. But it's also just like, you know, like, I, I am amazed that you got away with this on no money. Because, like, we can we can barely get a stunt like that done today on a million-dollar budget, it sounds like, without, like, all the different elements of legality and everything like that, which are essential. But the fact remains, it's expensive. And that uh, is where, like, these early
0: comedians really are daredevils. Yeah, as well, because like, yeah, those people are being just
2: hoisted up, and it's the one thing that doesn't exist anymore for positive reason. I think that unless that's you're a, Tom Cruise. Well, yeah, well, he wants to go to space, and you know, I, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm not opposed to that because I want to see what, 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 what can you do up there? Are you going to run while floating? I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but I'm always here for it.
0: <laughs> I, I, I always end up buying a ticket for those because they are. <laughs> it harkens back to like the risks, you know, when you hear about him doing the jump on the last one where they, they had to shoot it 183 days cause they could only do one take a day. Yeah. Um, it, and they're just burning money trying and the whole movie's done. They just need these three shots. It recalls Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah. The grandiosity of it. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And the idea of it all centers back to that, to that shot of Doug going up. The, the rafters of that tall castle for for his Robin Hood in 1915. That was I mean,
0: another one we got to see at the uh, oh,
1: theater.
2: Damn that, that's one where I'm like, I don't know if I would have had the patience for it as a kid to watch a silent because silent films took me a while to appreciate. But that one, I'm just like, you know, I might still be excited about that one shot, especially on a wall because because it kind of complements it in a visual scheme, um, and additionally with with by the way Tati ends this film. One of the final shots of this movie is him literally racing in a clear cycling race.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he drafts off the Baguette Boys' motorcycle. Yeah, in order to beat the uh, the cyclists.
2: Does he win the Tour de France in this movie? Is that the implication? Wins the Tour de Fete, if nothing else. The Tour, the, he wins the Jour de Fete. He wins the Jour de France. Hey-oh. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> also, I'm glad that you said you had an appreciation for cycling in films because. And in life. And that's a wonderful thing to possess because my first exposure to this in the French realm was actually *Triplets de Velville. Oh, yes. Sylvain Chimay's film. And I, because I watched that as a kid just looking at an image on Entertainment Weekly for when it was nominated for the Oscar. And I was like, what the hell is this movie? And I thought it was going to be about these cool uh, jazz swinging triplets who then end up solving a mystery. And it's not. And it's still a great movie. Um, my favorite sequences are still with the triplets, but I mean that opening is just absolute uh, lava. It's insane It's got Josephine Baker animated in it And it's 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 glorious and then when they're actually I it's lo- just like
0: kind of a little eerie and like a little off Yeah,
2: yeah. and when they actually when 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 the grandmother um, Meets them in the alley and you hear the old versions of them doing it That's a shot that I recall in my head as like one of those uh, impressionable shots mm of aged entertainers who still have it or at least think they still have it and what's the difference between their reality and their perception of reality in the grand scheme of being an entertainer it's one of the reasons why the sunshine boy still works for me is because like one of these guys at the very least still thinks he can entertain people but he's clearly about to die um and uh so like that element of cycling in particular that's used as a bad guy plot and whatnot here this is celebration of it and i think that this film like one of the articles on Criterion talks about, like, you know, they said, like, the, there's the pristineness of this village that almost has a Vichy-like naivete, and I, th- I feel like the article writer goes a little bit, like, it, it reaches a little too far in there, but I do think that there is an element of like celebrating French culture within this, or at least what the perception is of French culture, and for, and for Tati, that's there is this element of the cyclist there is something about the cyclist postman on the French countryside that he is drawing off of and he is lampooning and celebrating all at once. He's finding a way to mix the two together. And I, and that doesn't always work because sometimes people either think they're, you're mocking or you're aggrandizing. And when you can split it down the middle and get both, it's incredible. And it's complimented again by some stunt work with him, you know, like careening off into a, into a river and one. That's a great stunt. That is insane. And the river's very deep. Yeah. I I wondered like how many takes that was. <laughs> it had to be one. I think it had to be one.
0: Yeah, or they had to re- completely reset, dry him off, like that's that's a lot of work. It's a great stunt. Yeah. It's a good, like, 15-foot drop riding a bike at full speed and then hitting a corner, missing uh, the bridge, and then riding, like, clean-off, Dukes of Hazard style, into space. Yeah. Falling into the water, completely submerging, like, and then resurfacing uh, down, down the river a bit. And then as he's trying to get the bike out even, like, post-stunt, he starts to climb up the bank, falls back in, and that's when you see how deep it is because he, again, just completely submerges. Right. Um, yeah, that's not a carbon frame bike either. That's like a heavy duty steel. Yeah. Good old fashioned.
2: That's, that's, that's that their old, good old engineering that you refer to when you, when you have this, uh, this image of the yesteryears, if you will. And that's, that that can't be an easy day on set whatsoever. Well,
0: he's got idols, um, who took risks on screen Mm -hmm. and, and I really think that stunt holds up with, like, pretty much. You know, it's not like Keaton on the train exactly, but, but it is like a, it's an impressive stunt, and I think it it fits, fits into that pocket pretty nicely.
2: And I will, I will say that not only do I agree with you, but I also do think that I would, I would, I would correct you in the sense that, like, when we use the phrase "Is it Keaton on the train?" I feel like you, it's almost, it's almost. uh To my mind it sometimes feels disrespectful to just relegate it to the one stunt. I look at it as an amalgamation of all of them because each of them did elaborate gags their own way. Because if you look at modern times with Chaplin skating around that uh skating around that department store where he's clear drop and he's blindfolded. Yeah. That that unnerves me more than the train and Keaton, but the footwork of Keaton on the train impresses me and then Lloyd in Safety Last right, makes me wonder how he's still alive.
0: That one makes my palms sweat. Yeah.
2: It's one of those things where it's like the only time I've ever been been able to see Safety Last on a big screen was technically in the movie Hugo (laughs) Uh, when you have the clip of it. Um, And I will tell you that another thing that silent film comedies of this era have – if they don't have a plot that ends traditionally, they have an emotional ending. I think Chaplin does this more often than not. So you can draw Chaplin here directly. This movie pretty much has an emotional ending to a certain respect because there's an emotional satisfaction that Francois receives from achieving the speed of American postman and reclaiming, a sense of honor that's the one thing that i'm not sure how to how to read by the time his journey here ends is like
1: well we if is, we walk
0: through it i'm sorry go ahead
2: yeah i was gonna say i was gonna ask the question like is it honor for him or is it more just reassurance
0: i think he reclaims a lot of uh self-esteem mm-hmm. um and then if we walk through just chronologically how it plays out him trying to compete with um the americans or this like a hyper real spoof of what Americans are,
2: which by the way, he does run into actual Americans that are military. Yeah. They're MPs. Yeah. And their
0: helmets clink together. It's another great little oral gag. Um, I, 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 I do not know where he gets the phone on his bike. It comes after the second time he rides in the cafe.
2: I I rerounded a couple of times and I finally just gave up on trying to explain its logic point. I think
0: that's something that just didn't make it into the movie. Yeah. But he comes out of the cafe, maybe he crashes into the wall. He comes out with a phone on his bike and that's like a whole gag we didn't even touch, but it's funny. It yeah. pays off later.
2: Yeah, hello. Like, Put me through a boudin.
0: <laughs> yeah, it it's dumb. Um, it's dumb and it's absurd and it's very funny. But him trying to compete with these Americans, um puts him in the river and like that's kind of his sobering like he's at a fever pitch yeah and then he falls into the water he comes out of the drink bike intact and he's kind of like squishy walking down the road yeah and then a family uh no he hitches a ride with yeah. the old lady yeah our our wonderful old lady yeah. who like now comes in to kind of like lay the moral which she <gasps> yes, says yeah Like, hey, man, Americans are cool, and they're fast, and they're fun, but, like... Take your time. Yeah, she says they can't make the crops grow any faster, first Mm -hmm. of all. And we're, like, a you know, we're in the country. Yeah. And then she she drops the line, which is kind of the mic drop. Uh, It's both a joke and, like, surprisingly sage. She says, news is rarely good, Mm -hmm.
2: so let it take its sweet time. Yep. Which I think we talked about the usefulness of that character. I think that's your justification point for that ending. And especially given how Tati is experimenting in the first world of cinema for himself, that sort of chorus character is absolutely acceptable from, from, from my personal vantage point because of that final shot. If you can pay off that chorus character in a way that isn't intrusive uh, on a, an a on a absolutely deliberate scale i think you've succeeded and i think she provides an emotional climax that, a, a, an emotional conclusion that is absolutely necessary to the entirety of the village not even just francois it's the entirety of that village who is in, experiencing in the course of 24 to 48 hours an entire fair being set up with expose of the world beyond their realm and beyond their trees you know that's that's insane and the woman commenting throughout is commenting on how fast everything is operating. And yet, the moment that these villagers feel the most comfortable is when they're actually slowed back down. And th- there's themes that have been discussed in articles about this film, about the, uh, the loss of, a, of that pastoral image that you talk about, but also the simplicity inherent in a smaller community period via mechanicalized uh, innovation. And her saying that also does also give this universal sense of like, it's a truth that still exists. That we don't really have because of Twitter and social media, which is again, both a blessing and a curse. It's It's not inherently evil unless you're talking about the people who use it. But there is this element of a truth of just like of, of realizing where the world is spinning and Tati is just utilizing it at the precipice of everything really about to change within the fifties and sixties and seventies. Like things are going to change drastically within a 30 year span by the time his film career ends, the world will have changed so much from the moment it started. Like whether that be through the innovations of television or, the way the political spectrum changes or the way the rock scene uh, invades music, like everything around the world is going to change at such a pace that the old lady in this movie would barely be able to keep up with it. Even if she had all the goats to wrangle around in the village, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. He will go from having a, like a major point of this film being a car driving quickly through the village and him stopping it with a bike and saying like, Hey, slow down. mm -hmm. There are kids playing to his last major movie uh, being about people stuck in traffic. Yeah. You know, uh, just a movie made up of vehicles and people sort of being lost in that. Um, And that'll, I guess, sort of be the arc uh, if we keep uh, getting to explore Tati. Um, The movie ends really with he then hops off the Mm -hmm. wagon there's a family uh, with the kid from the beginning and they're all working in a field and they call him over to help. And Mm -hmm. he says, you know, he lets them know that he's kind of still on duty and has delivered the mail. And they very flippantly are like, the boy will do it. And then the kid from the beginning uh, picks up his bag and puts on his hat and goes marching off down the road, uh, ostensibly to like be the postman Mm -hmm. while this guy having uh, burned so bright and so fast might now live a slower life and a in a more humbled life. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's his arc as well. He's he's like learned a lot. Yeah. And uh and it it's almost like they're saying, you know, leave the future for the kids. Yeah. And then that kid as the mailman, uh coming full circle we get the exact same shot that we start with, mm-hmm. with the uh, the camera sit in the truck bed with the carousel horses, yeah. and instead of the kid like running towards them, now the kid's like fading in the background as they pull away. Yeah, um, it's a weird triumph. You're not entirely sure who's triumphant or what's triumphant, but mm-hmm. it it leaves on a real big upswing.
2: Yeah, thing. I think I think the the perception of who is triumphant. It's almost like I want to say it's irrelevant because if he wanted something specific, we already know that he is intentful enough to want something specific in his imagery with those heels that he wants you to leave it into. I've always looked at it as the difference between a happy ending and an optimistic ending. I don't know if this is a happy ending. I think this is an optimistic ending. But also, we've already had a form of a happy ending in the form of Francois completing his route in record time that probably baffled Guinness and Ripley combined. And I do think that when it comes to the kid marching off as this lineage for the future, it's it's. I think it's this element of... of What POV is possessed from the perspective of a young child directly in this film is carried to its logical conclusion if he has any form of thematic through line and if he is, I'm assuming, learning from somebody like Chaplin with the kid or any Chaplin film for that matter, period, about how you wrap these things up. I don't know if he's looking at it through a film theory or analytical lens, the way Godard and Truffaut would do. He's not quite a Cahier. Yeah, Yeah, he's not. It's yeah. This isn't. He's not writing for Cahier du Cinema right now. He's not doing that. He's telling a story the way it makes sense based off of what he saw before. He's not copying. He's he's uh, drawing inspiration to a point that also feels unique to his abilities. Whether that's through impressions, sports impressions or the art of mimicry or having a basic knowledge of what a good gag will be that doesn't require an elaborate stunt. And I think the amalgamation of that provides this optimistic ending that also caps off as a joke in itself. The idea that we'll get a Francois two <laughs> with this kid is the joke. Like that's the next generation and also the next generation is learning from arguably the silliest of all the postmen to ever live on this planet. And that's kind of the joke. We do, we do stumble into the footsteps of our forebearers, but the only difference is, is that we learn the lessons that they t- teach us and hope that we don't have the same fumbly footwork going forward. And I get this sense of because the movie is as silly as it is, as intent and design, that's meant to be a silly ending, to capitalize on an e- efficient moment of just like, well, the kid doesn't want to work. So he's going to go off and be like a happy postman who just kind of wanders around. Yeah. He's like skipping it. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good shot. It's, it's idyllic and, and optimistic, but it's not, it's not a happy ending. Cause I have a living. Yeah. It, yes. It's, it is the high art cinema equivalent of the garbage disposal on the Flintstones. <laughs> and that i don't and, and I, it, that sounds like a joke but it's true like it is that is the the brilliance of what comedy can do in its purest form we've talked about comedy in several different formats on this show but we haven't talked about it in its root forms primarily because we haven't talked about the kid or the general or safety last on this show and dissected it one because up until recently i thought it would be impossible to talk about silent films on this show because there's an audible nature to what we're doing. Duh. But we kind of just proved through this podcast that we can discuss silent film in a dissective and detailed way that doesn't isolate the audience from a viewing experience. And also, as I've said before on this show, ideally you're watching these movies before you listen to this. Uh, if not, it's fine. But ideally the, the format goes, you listen to that silly introduction, you watch the movie and then you come back afterward. Um, basically I'm wanting six hours of your time apparently just give them six hours of your time yeah exactly I'm not asking too much per week (laughs) Um, but, but either even if they were to get the impression of it off of this alone this conversation alone we have described reasons why Tati's influence is important and we've had both examples of how he's drawing from the past and how he's carrying on the future which is the intent of this show Um, I'd argue that he's an inspiration. My, my biggest takeaway is his inspiration towards aspiring filmmakers, because here's a person who jumps in with only the knowledge of really show business as it existed up until that point. And he's not going to a film school. He's not going to a university to learn about storytelling technique he is getting his hands dirty in the in the grime and grit of what filmmaking was when it started which was a nickel and dime operation to get a quick buck by people who needed a way to enter into a successful life in our country or in any country doesn't mean it's just america but there is an element of how cinema was founded off of the backs of ambitious dreamers with no chance And there is a form of elitism that exists in film and I won't go into that element of it. I will say though that I love that Tati as embraced as he is by intellectual sections. At the end of the day, if I showed this or I'm assuming other Tati films going forward, I could probably get a very visceral and positive reaction from somebody who would not be your common audience on a Criterion.
0: Yeah, all the way until playtime.
2: Okay. So that's a good thing to keep in mind, <laughs> but uh, yeah, his next film ends up winning
0: an Oscar. Yeah, it's much beloved. My grandfather shows it to me. Um, yeah, he's. What's the new medium? What are they doing? Can I shoot it in color? Yeah, how can we take this a little further? And then I, you know we had talked about doing Sullivan's travels and then you ended up covering it in a great episode, uh, with yeah, someone. That, yeah, I'm with glad we didn't do it. Cause that was a great discussion with, um,
2: Kathy Fuller-Steele. Yeah. 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 You know, we, and, and actually that, I think that Sullivan's travels would have, it, it's almost like there's, there's spiritual, uh, elements between that episode or it's a gift episode that just came out and this,
0: and this feels like a movie that you could show in that prison Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and everyone would be digging it. Yeah. You know, this is that movie that might rekindle Sullivan's passion for comedy. Yeah, exactly.
2: And tell him that he doesn't need to experience hardship. And yeah, I mean, the, the world of Sturgis and that film still fascinates me. It's a puzzle that I wish that I hope I don't fully untangle in my head because of how the, because the brilliance of that film is realizing that it is a balance. And, intellectualism versus the masses is this ongoing film debate that is frankly needless at this point. As a writer, like,
0: I've fallen victim to that so many times where you're staring at the page going, like, I'm preaching right now or I'm just describing a problem. This is exhausting. I wouldn't watch this. Yeah, exactly. It felt important when I wrote it. Now that it's out, like, how can I make this funny?
2: Yeah, Or, or how can I at least shift it around to where it's not so overtly analytical that's like a one thing that i've learned as a writer is not to indulge in monologue right which was rough because the writers that i was attracted to when i was younger were kevin or quentin they're people that i still love but they are not what draw me back into screenwriting now um which i think is a good thing in certain regards um that doesn't mean i wouldn't want to try my hand at something like that again for myself um, but also like being aware of if the intent of this business is to entertain and to uh, how, allow people to escape while maybe weaving in a small lesson that they didn't realize or that you didn't even realize as the writer, I think you have to come at it from a pure love of film first and then intellectualism and storytelling processes second And I think Tati took that to heart because there's nothing pretentious about this movie, number one. But number two, this movie is clearly in love with something across the pond that the whole world still loves. Um, And then I would argue that like some of the better comedies that we've seen over the last... 10 to 20 to 30 years um have gone a little bit scaled back a little smaller and are much more character driven dialogue heavy pieces rather than broad physical i think that there's a lineage that this movie still carries to with those small moments that tati provides i think that's the big tra- the big thing that's um been latched onto uh in the grand scheme of what comedy has become Big and broad comedy, I think, has become uh, not difficult or impossible, but it's few and far between, um, and and also it being done right is the other thing. Or uh, I would point it as like I'm not like I, I, there are some there are some comedy films that come out that do the bigger, broader like physical shtick, and they don't quite hit it because they're going for a lower a lower bar than even Tati goes for. And it's almost like there's there's less restraint. And it's almost like with all the accessibility we have to be as vulgar as we want at times, we don't know when to rein it in for ourselves. It's almost like, okay, you've been giving the keys to a kingdom. Mm. Now use your judgment on how often you use this. And uh, the best way that I can describe this without blathering on and on is every time somebody gets kicked in the nuts or... um Uh, smacked in the ass um, by like whether even if it's jackass with like a a elephant stabbing him in the ass with a tusk you know like that that element of it I think gets over over utilized when it comes to physical humor in film today but it is it is advancing the shtick in certain regards that's why
0: I call for for writing so that you know when you (sighs) When you have a good script with a story, mm-hmm. then you care whose ass it is on that screen and why it's farting. Yeah. To quote uh, maybe the greatest comedy of the last 20 years of the accuracy.
2: It's a wonderful way to 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 look at it. And on that note, that is the end of, uh, of, of Jour de Fete, by the way. And we will talk about the reception of this film, which was it was... A major hit being released in 1949 in France, and then eventually finding its way to the shores of America in 1952. And okay. something that I was looking into, trying to look into that we talked about last night about the, uh, subtitle versions of, um, uh, he um, versus the English versions being released, um, where there were no subtitles and whatnot. The versions that existed with this film up until the restoration was just the black and white with the subtitles for English. Um, I saw a time discrepancy with the color cut, and I wasn't sure what that was about. But the thing that that Wikipedia pointed me to was that it was 78 minutes for the color version, but Mm -hmm. the movie we have is 87 minutes. So I wasn't sure if there was much change in that regard.
0: Yeah, and I'm not sure if what's lost is pacing or just because they're like discovering footage if like some of that film was damaged okay i I didn't uh dig into that
2: okay i it's i don't think it's a huge deal um it was just one thing that i did want to make sure i bring up within it but regardless this gives tati from all from from what i've researched into like the 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 catapult into his next phase of his career which ends up being the from what I'm understanding is like the the, the sophistication of what Jour de Fede is. But we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here on Tati because we I, I want to go back to this and I want you on board with it because I think we've had a wonderful discussion tonight about this. Oh, I will come by and talk Tati. Yeah. Any day. And within that though, I think that the big thing that I wanna ask before we let you go is when you are looking at a film like Tati and regardless if it's our major dissection here or just you sitting down with the television when it's all said and done criterion has this reputation of being uh, a little bit more of a fancy schmancy pretentious label unless it happens to put out something you love like a princess bride Um, or the rock or the or the rock or Armageddon. Or RoboCop. Or any, Ro- was Ro- saying, RoboCop was oh, deserved. Hey, RoboCop was deserved. Yeah, for
0: Hooven. Uh, if Criterion doesn't do Showgirls, I'll I'll quit the business. <laughs> I'll
2: do it myself. That was the one thing that was stopping. <laughs> Hollywood's gone like Jesus. We could have gotten rid of Sterling a we, long time ago. We could take care of this Rascal a long time ago oh. by just getting getting them Showgirls in 4K. Oh shit, Joey! What the fuck is wrong with you? I told you to. I told you to take care of that Showgirls job right away what the hell (laughs) i'm sorry man what were you asking (laughs) Um, um, i was talking about showgirls fellas the my new martin scorsese movie no um the idea of there being pretension because of the film being french Mm. the film being in black and white the film being from this era in cinema that gets lumped into this broader spectrum of new wave or overseas titles if you were to tell somebody about this movie how would you sell it to them without the baggage of pretension oh i'm i mean
0: yeah like it's a it's a really fun comedy about a mailman on a bike doing weird stunts and getting shit on by a town,
2: like thank you. The reason why I asked that, it was not to put you in a rough position or anything. It, it mainly is to kind of break down a big barrier that I've had for myself for years. And I want to start, hopefully, I don't claim that this show has any reach whatsoever. For all I know, it's like one bear listening in the woods. But well, I listen from time to time. Uh, oh, so it's you and the bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Sometimes we listen together. Oh my god, you have listening parties with the bear. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. We have like rose nights. It's really sweet. Oh, I'm glad that he's a classy. bear. <laughs> no, he. You know, he drinks like a sweeter. Does he have a fez? Because um, bears with fezes are cool. Like Wilmer Yeah.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> not no. Yes, he has Wilmer Valderrama on his head—a bear with Wilmer Valderrama. Wilmer doesn't watch the films, ironically.
0: No, he can't anymore. Actually, <laughs> he just uh he's had an eye eye surgery. Oh shoot! That, um, but he does come to Bunko with us. Oh, good for him.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's a sport. Yeah. No. Um. The idea of like you know for people who have listened and have reached out about feeling isolated about. The titles that we've discussed that are classics that they feel, uh, they feel intimidated uh, by them, and like I think that the discussion of Tati we've just had, we've managed to incorporate anything from Back to the Future to Jackass in this conversation, and Jackass came from me because I can't help but look at stunt work today and think like Jackass is is technically a last bastion for that, mm. but um, I think that there's there's an element of looking at something like the Tati collection and the artwork and thinking that it's a little too complicated for you. And I would argue that we've just spent close to four hours proving that that's not the case. It's not too complicated for somebody to get involved in. And
0: yeah, I'm a blue collar filmmaker who comes mm-hmm. from from nowhere and I have some low rent tastes. Yeah. Like yeah, we're, I think we're it's a horror, very horror fans. We're horror fans. We're horror we're horror fans. fans. Yeah. Um, like The Cable Guy is one of my all-time favorite movies. That is a great dark comedy. <laughs> I, I think it's brilliant.
2: Um it took me a while to love it, though, because I was like, why is Jim Carrey being so mean? <laughs> <laughs> I was a kid, though, and I was like, oh, now I get it. I, now I get it. I didn't
0: see that until I, uh, like.
2: Oh. later in adulthood oh really we I had kind of skipped that one we got it from the video store because i because i just saw jim carrey's face on it and i was like i need to watch this and then i was just like this is strange i don't know if i liked it and then i watched it years later and i'm like nah i get it stiller's a fucking genius behind the camera here oh uh, well he has been oh yeah tropic thunder was the was the double down on that zoolander 2 zoolander or, not, 2 is a
0: mess and yeah. i i think he's going through like some kind of a reckoning oh
2: yeah i meant the first zoolander
0: first zoolander's great
2: t-o-o do
0: reality yeah. bites no stiller uh stiller's a legend i'll buy him a coffee any day come on down
2: yeah absolutely come on down to the ballyhoo talk about tati with us um yeah drink a perna with us do it and but yeah i do think that it's important to to knock down our knock down those barriers because there is so much to experience that you can get on the Criterion Channel that if you're worried about the content output on a Netflix or a Amazon prime, not living up to your standards, there is an entire channel on here that it it's not dedicated to isolating you as an audience. It actually is dedicated to opening up its arms and welcoming you in the twits fold. And right. I know, and I know subtitles suck guys, but I, I, I trust me when I say that it is worth it especially with Tati in this film in particular, the dialogue's sort of irrelevant really.
0: Well, and yeah, moving forward, like the other Tati movies, Mm -hmm. uh, the next one that's released does just doesn't have subtitles Mm because they think it's irrelevant because it's, it's all visual gags. Yeah. It's Tom and Jerry cartoons. It's grown up Tom and Jerry. Um, yeah. The only thing that makes these films pretentious are pretentious film shits. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, you have my blessing to chase him off with a broom.
2: (laughs) It's not and it's not that I would discredit the work that they've done in analyzing and deconstructing their work but I academia think it, is a hell of a drug. Yeah, go ex- on. Exactly. And that but that's the point is is that it's one thing to analyze and theorize it's another thing to actually sit down with a bucket of popcorn with a person you're trying to educate and guiding them rather than shaking them around for having missed the movie. And I think that an important part of what we just talked about is like how accessible it is from every angle of the spectrum from lowbrow to highbrow.
0: Yeah. Don't be a Marcel, be a Francois.
2: Exactly.
0: Lift, lift each other up guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't be intimidated by art. Like art is there for you to, to get into experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you, you know, you're meant to enjoy it, to be challenged by it. Um, to revisit it. Mm-hmm. I would argue all, all of Tati's films, uh, get so much more from revisiting. I'm a huge Altman guy as well. And like, mm. uh, you know, just to like tangent for a second, but like the things that you see come out of this, like if you're, if you're an Altman fan, if you dug, I guess like Prairie Home Companion was his last thing. But if you, you know, if you fuck with the long goodbye mm-hmm. or any of those, like Altman is clearly, if not directly influenced from this, like he's in the same wheelhouse in terms of i want to i want to create a lived in universe and i want an ensemble uh and then like you know Rowan Atkinson uh Mr Bean himself like mm-hmm. s- cites Tati as someone who inspired him someone he was obsessed with when he was in high school uh Mononcle the next film yeah or no i guess that's the third one but
2: yeah cuz uh call uh, is the next one holidays is the next one yeah yeah and uh, you and we actually we talked about Bean prior to recording and yeah you got this, right yeah and and I'll I'll digress that my appreciation for Bean has not been what it has compared to say my co-host Brad on Real Nerds but and you know my, Brad's probably not going to be too intrigued by Tati for his own for his own sake and that's totally fine he, if
0: he's, he's a Bean fan I don't know like clearly this guy fucked with this guy
2: I might I might con- try to convince Brad to give it a watch without any setup apart from this is what inspired Rowan Atkinson for Bean. you might appreciate this. It's only 87 minutes. Um, But, uh, but I, I, I love that you brought in the bean analogy because that is designed around physicalization of gags first and foremost. And the, the, to me, the, The element of Tati that I get from it is in in addition to the comedic influence, which I'm glad that you brought forth your knowledge of Tati to the table. With me being a novice and looking at this unfiltered, unfettered by basic, basic facts beforehand. It was an honor. Yeah. I watched this blank. And my takeaway from it was like, isn't it incredible what we can do in this business with little to no resource and only a big imagination because this is his first film. And it's also not overtly complicated to the point of impossibility.
0: And this movie succeeds where space jam two fails. (laughs) (laughs) Look,
2: do we want it? This movie dunks on space jam two. This, this, this movie does not have random droogies in the background or Don Cheadle as an algorithm that algae rhythm. Why why is his name algae rhythm? And it's the stupidest possible version of that joke. Exactly. And also why is Daffy Duck the coach in space jam two, when he should clearly be a player because he was the original looniest of the looney tunes before bugs bunny stole his thunder but bugs bunny always gets to be jesus in these movies anyway if that movie gets kids into looney tunes and they watch the original cartoons then i cannot complain i have yet to see the evidence of it yet because we haven't five years hasn't passed but um or give Joe Dante a chance to do another Looney Tunes movie cuz he made a perfectly good one in 2003.
0: <laughs> yeah, just give the just just give Joe Dante money. If there's one takeaway from this episode it's that Joe Dante needs more money. I will buy a ticket to anything with his name on it.
2: You know what? He doesn't even need to make movies. Just give him money. <laughs> just give him money. He needs a vacation. <laughs> he needs a holiday. Hey. Yeah. Joe
0: Dante's holiday, guys. This has been real fun. I'm delighted to have been here. Yeah, Uh, Zach. Good
2: luck editing my
0: ramblings into a coherent episode.
2: I think this will be more. I I know. I think this is far from incoherent. And I want to thank you for coming on board to talk about this. We will have you back for more Tati. And I will find a way to talk about a American comedy from this particular era that we can compare and contrast a little bit. Maybe delightful. Even, Maybe even bringing you in for one of the greats, like a Chaplin or a Keaton or a Lloyd, we'll have to see. If it doesn't take another four years, I will not be mad at you. No, it will not take more than four years, I guarantee that. It will actually take less than five days for me to start begging you to come back. Um, but really quickly, let people know what you've got coming up on the pipeline and anything else you would like to wrap up on with your thoughts on Tati?
0: Uh, that's great. I mean, I've, I've spoken um, until I'm empty about Tati, but um, yeah, the Colorado Film Video Association, if you are, are a Colorado filmmaker um, or you're a Colorado photographer, if you're like peripherally involved in the Colorado film scene, I'm a Colorado human. <laughs> yeah, you're a Colorado podcaster, man. If you're not a member by now, I'll be. By the time this episode drops, if you're not a member, I'll I'll be um, disappointed because <laughs> I I really think the creative community in Colorado is so resilient, um, and not just like the Denver metro area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things that they're doing in Fort Collins, the things they're doing down like by Pueblo, like. It's really a great state for filmmaking, and I think there's sort of an unfair reputation that there isn't work here or there aren't interesting artists here. Mm -hmm. Uh, You guys are out here. I'm out here. We're out here. Uh, Check out the CVFA if it seems applicable to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can find that at uh, cvfa.com or Mm thecvfa.com. We're going to. We just launched an e-store. Yeah. Uh, that just dropped, and all the proceeds from that go to grants for Colorado filmmakers. Mm. Uh, so, you know, if you, it's almost like a lottery kind of, if you buy into that and you're a member, then you can apply for grants and that money might come back to you. Uh, we're very excited to launch that program. Mm. Um, very excited for this new board moving forward, just kind of um, picking up the community and seeing how we can make it stronger yeah. and more resilient.
2: Um, Speaking as, a Colorado filmmaker myself, um, however much I kick my shit around with it because um, I, I, I tend to look at the title director for myself and I go, <coughs> but there is this, there is the, the community that possesses, that, that's possessed in this state that's still very strong and still exists. I still do believe in it and I'm glad that folks like you have the fortitude to carry it out because it seemed like for years that it wasn't possible. And my own anxiety doesn't allow me to try what you guys attempt. Um, And also with all you do with writing and creating and promoting the art form itself. So I thank you for what you guys are doing. And I hope that when uh, everything is all said and done with the listeners who are in Colorado, if they haven't signed up for CFEA, I'll be joining at this point. Because I I, I need to... uh, buy into the community that I've been working under for 10 years.
0: Yeah. Guys, the rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Like don't put each other down. You're not competing. Uh, the resources are there. Yeah. Let's, let's all pick each other up. Exactly.
2: It's, this isn't a, uh, this isn't, this isn't a, uh, a, a battle of who's the strongest anymore. This is about us creating, uh, an industry for ourselves where we can because the illusions of the industry only being in Hollywood have been dismantled for years. It's about time we started believing it.
0: Yeah, it literally started here. I mean, you know, it was in the East, but before it made it to Hollywood, they were shooting in Golden, they were shooting around Denver. Like I just got a whole groovy book when I was in Trinidad that's the history of Colorado filmmaking um, that I cannot wait to crack open. Yeah. And uh, maybe there's some material in there for an episode as well. I'd love to come back and talk about that.
2: Actually, let's let's make a plan for that. I'll have to get the book. Awesome. And we'll um and, and actually, when we whenever you send me the link to the book, I will put a link to that book in the liner notes of this episode when it goes up in late August. Um, but on that note, thank you very much, Sterling, for joining us. This is going to wrap up this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us at Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review on Twitter. On social media like Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can write us at ballyhoo at gmail.com. That's R E V U E because I'm a nut. Um, on the next upcoming episodes, um, I believe we will uh, be going back to Mr. Ryan Frost for Irene Dunn for a double bill of the awful, tr- of, the, of uh, my favorite wife, I'm sorry, and Showboat, um, which means we will also be technically introducing James Whale. And I can confirm that an old friend of ours, Matt Willicks, will be returning to help us talk a little bit about a universe of monsters with a little talk about a certain Bela Lugosi who made his appearance in episode one. Before he did a black cat, he was the one and only Count Dracula. And we will be talking about Dracula, not only Todd Browning's version, but we will also be talking about the Spanish version and how the two compare. Uh, But until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.